Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Greetings, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. This week's episode is jammed packed with your favorite creepypastas that are guaranteed to fill your spooky tank. Sit back, relax, grab a warm beverage, and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Something's Really Wrong in Dover, Ohio. Written by Cavs Pulse. I'm always been a bit of a lurker, but I'm coming to the one place I think can help me now. Something's seriously wrong in my hometown. I have always been an explorer and after having spent most of my younger years being raised and educated in Ohio, I struck out on my own. After five years in DC and almost one year in Florida, I've been relatively happy with my choices. But I do miss Ohio in the fall time. You know, cold weather and all. My family all lives in Tuscawaras County, which is a small county about an hour south of Akron. So it's never an issue when I want to go home for long periods of time. And after living on an island most of the year, it's nice to go somewhere that has a large landmass for me to explore and hike and whatnot. Which brings us to two weeks ago, when I called my mom and asked if she would be willing to put me up for a week so I could come see some old friends. She being a typical mother, happily obliged. We talked about the comings and goings of a small town Dover, Ohio, and the typical neighbor gossip when she said, The area, it's just changing. Me being from there, I dismissed it. Something was always going to happen, but it never quite materialized in my small hometown. I drove up a week later. Happy to be home and seeing family and friends, I spent the first two days bouncing all around the county. But one night, I couldn't sleep, so I hopped in the jeep and decided to take a night drive. Driving like a bat out of it across those winding roads until I ended up back in town. I stopped at the local Circle K for a pop. This is the first time I noticed something off. As I walked out of the Circle K and into the parking lot, I noticed a man standing in his front yard next to the Circle K. Just standing there, staring straight ahead at the empty street in front of him. I assumed he maybe had AirPods on or something, but he made no noise. Just stood never once turning his head. I brushed this off and of course hopped in my jeep. Once started, the radio blared to life louder than I had remembered having it. I turned it down and once again looked toward the man. He was still standing but his head had shifted to the left and he was now staring at my car, staring at me. 
I could feel it. Needless to say, I noped out of there really quickly, and I got back to my mom's. I convinced myself that it was just a weird guy and I fell asleep. The next day, I happened to drive past that house again, and the man was gone, though I half expected to find him there still staring ahead. I told myself to quit being paranoid and to just enjoy my time here. Two nights later, I was at my sister's and we were talking about it. I told her about the man that I had seen and to my surprise, she said the same thing my mother had said weeks earlier. Yeah, Zach, the area is changing. I asked her what she meant and all she said was, just is. After a bit more catching up, I hopped in the jeep again and I took off to mom's. Driving through town late at night was always peaceful, as the roads were usually barren, barring the occasional late night driver or two. You tend to zone out except for when you see the random red lights. Something felt off and an unease ran through me. I came to a red light and that's when I saw them. The houses lining the street on the block before me had people standing in front of them. At least one person in front of every single house. All of them standing in their front lawns, uniform, staring straight ahead. I turned off the radio and rolled down the window and slowed down in front of one of the houses where two people, a man and a woman, stood. You guys okay? I managed to say. Nothing. What's going on? I stammered, trying to put some bass in my voice, but still nothing. Their eyes weren't even focused on me, just staring straight ahead. Their heads didn't even move. Screw this, I thought, and I sped off. Further down the road I went, desperately trying to get to my mom's and shake the creepiness factor. However, as I continued and turned off the main street, I noticed that more people were out in front of their homes. It wasn't every house, but probably one out of every three, all of them staring straight ahead. To my relief, my mother's street was not experiencing this. I ran into the house. Mom, you've got to get up. Something's going on. Zach, it's 12.30 at night. What could possibly be going on? I told her the story and she looked at me incredulously, and it was obvious that she didn't believe me. I begged her to come with me, and I could show her. I finally coaxed her out and we got in the jeep, and I went to the areas where I had seen the people. No one was there. The streets deserted like they usually were at this hour. My mom was annoyed and complained about being pulled out of bed. I told her that I knew what I had seen, and that it was weird and something felt off in the town. Zach, the area is changing, she said coldly, almost as if it wasn't in her voice. I asked her what she meant, but she gave the same answer my sister had only hours earlier. It just is. I pressed her for more, but she didn't say anything until we got back to her home. 
She told me goodnight and went to bed. I couldn't sleep. Something felt off and I felt as though those people were still out there. The next morning, I left for Cleveland, as planned to see some friends over the course of two days. I stopped at Speedway to get gas that morning and was tired due to the lack of sleep the night before. I went in for coffee and to my surprise, the man standing behind the counter was the same man that I had seen at the start of this all. I froze, unable to move. Does he recognize me? I thought. No, no, there's no way. I walked up with my coffee and he looked at me before asking, Anything else? No, no, I stammered. He was different, fidgeting and tapping his fingers on the counter. So much movement compared to who I saw the first night. I had to say something, anything to him. I didn't know if he knew me. Hey, man, I think I saw you the other night. I managed to blurt out, my eyes avoiding his. Oh, where at? He asked. I think I saw you standing outside of your house the other night around 11.30. I barely muttered. Oh, nah, man, it couldn't have been me. I open the store and I go to bed pretty early. He replied. Must have been someone else then. I managed to say, not really believing it. This was definitely the same guy. Lots of new people moving here, man. Don't know the whole town like I used to. The area is changing, that's for sure. As he said it, his eyes got very distant for a moment, before shifting back to his cheerful demeanor. The words sent chills down my spine. What the heck was going on? My sister, my mom, and now this guy all had the same reaction with the exact same words. I grabbed my coffee and got out of there, ignoring his. Have a good one, brother. As I walked out the door... Being in Cleveland was wonderful for those two days and I felt as though a giant weight had lifted off my shoulders. Life was normal again. My college friends and I went to a Cavs game, hung out and drank ourselves silly, and overall had a great time. All of those weird experiences wild in the back of my mind felt like a distant memory. Which brings us to tonight. My mom called me around four and asked if I was heading home. I told her that I would still be there tonight, but she should leave the door unlocked in case I leave late. I told her that I would text her when I left Cleveland prior to the two-hour drive. I felt a little bit paranoid leaving the city. Something's off back home, right? Is my mind playing tricks on me? I did my best to push this feeling down, but I couldn't shake it. This ominous sense of dread as I rolled down I-77 to a place that now terrified me. I pulled off the interstate and onto the exit around 11.30. My anxiety was borderline overwhelming, like this impending sense of dread. I went past the gas station and turned back into the town towards my mom's place and I wasn't prepared for what I saw. Every house, every house had people in front of it, all of them standing lockstep in their front lawns. I couldn't believe it. It was as if the road was a red carpet, and they were lining it for me and my jeep to drive down. No one moved. No one even acknowledged the car as it rolled down the street. 
and they all just stared straight ahead. I have to get to my mom and my sisters now, I said, speeding through the quiet streets, the faces not acknowledging me, just these same blank stares. Fathers, mothers, children, everyone just staring straight ahead. What was this? Why the heck are all these people out here? I finally came to my mom's street and I saw what I dreaded most. Her and my stepfather were in front of their home, just like all the others. Standing there, straight-eyed at the street. I got out of the car and onto the street slowly, almost as if I was afraid a sudden movement would cause the various neighbors to descend upon me. Heck, even my own parents. Who knows what the heck this is? Mom, Mom, are you okay? I asked in a hushed voice. Tim. Nothing. They just stared straight ahead. I was so scared in that moment. What was causing this? Why don't they acknowledge me? Jesus Christ, I'm her own son. Terrified and shot, I grabbed my mom by the shoulders. Mom, we gotta get the heck out of here right now, I screamed. And she blinked. The first movement that I had seen. Her head jerked sideways almost inquisitively, as if she was trying to sort what was happening. She opened her mouth and let out a slight, gravelly breath. The area is changing, she whispered. It wasn't her voice. It was a guttural, gravelly voice. Suddenly, I heard the sound of movement, and the entire street was looking at me. All at once, they opened their mouth, and they let out a wail. It sounded like... No, there's no way to even describe it. Dozens of wails from these people, these neighbors. Like dozens of people were all crying out in agony at once. And the sound, it kept increasing. Almost as if the whole neighborhood was all crying out in a horrible, horrible scream. I ran across the front yard as fast as I could, away from my own mother, and I jumped in my car and sped off. The radio was off, as all I could hear were these screams continue. It was the entire town. They were all looking at me, their faces shifting as my jeep sped on down the road. But all of their voices were projecting out this horrible, horrible noise. I have never heard anything like that, and I pray that I never will again. I jumped on the interstate and got the heck out of there. 
I drove for an hour to Akron, and I checked into a local hotel where I'm writing this. I, I don't know what to do. Do I go back in the daytime? Do I call the police? I have to do something. My whole family is there. I've tried calling my sisters and no one answers. I really hope that they're safe. But I dare not attempt to go get them now. Not until it's daylight. The area may be changing, but there's no way my family is going to change with it. I have spoken to God. He is terrified of what is happening in Central Asia. Written by Mike Jesus. The sky is the color of a burning bush. The step spreads out before me like a sea of nothingness. An ancient turtle crawls out of the yellowed grass. My spawn, it says. My brother, fruit of my soul. We stand before you pleading for help. The rest of the universe speaks along with the animal. I hear syllables on the frigid wind. I feel the presence of the sky. My soul surges with an indescribable wave of emotion. God, is that you? I ask. Yes. The universe replies without hesitation. It is us, God. We come to you, common traveler, with a request for aid. For a moment, my mind slips to the happenings at the encampment. I fear that the children are scrapping my bike for parts. Suspicion about the herbs that the medicine men have given me smolders in my stomach. For a moment, I feel fear, but that fear is quickly whisked away. Looking up at the sky, I feel whole. The air spins through the cosmos at my feet. In a burst of ecstasy, I feel my throat tightening. Tears fill my eyes. God? I ask, crying uncontrollable tears of joy. God, are you still there? Yes. What do you want me to do? We need your help, traveler. The sky thunders as it turns a deep shade of emerald. We are the life force. We are the whole. Yet, there is a corner of this world in which we are blind. There is a place in which our power wanes. We need you to go to this place and do our bidding. I wipe the tears out of my eyes, but more come. The blissful feeling of connection keeps on surging through my veins, driving me to peaks of joy that I did not know were humanly possible. Where is this place? I ask struggling to get the words out. The wind dies down. The old turtle retreats into its shell. The sky darkens into a starless night. The place which you seek is not far from here. It is by a city hidden in a forest. The place which you seek is... The voice goes quiet. The universe grows silent. 
a discomforting electricity rolls through the air. Scientific installation. The world finally says and a voice lacking all courage. When I first entered the voice, I experienced a feeling of joy that I could scarcely put into words. What I feel next can only be expressed through screams. With each syllable of that horrid name that I hear, a new shard of ice travels through my spine. All the love and life seeps out of the universe and is replaced with utter darkness. I run away. The voice asks me to return to listen to help, but I run away. With each plea for help that these guys deliver, I feel a glimmer of light, a flicker of something good. But that horrible dread soon consumes it. Scientific installation. Those incomprehensible words sent me sprinting through the step like a wild animal. I return to the encampment. I try to find someone who speaks Russian, but I can't. The blind panic that is raging across my being makes me feel faint. I crawl into the first yurt that I see. It's empty. Shaking, I curl up in the corner of the tent and lose consciousness. I sleep a dreamless sleep, as if something was taken away from me. When I wake, it takes me a moment to remember that I'm not in Melbourne anymore. Outside of the tent, the morning sun shines bright and the air smells of smoke and goat. I am somewhere in Central Asia, on that motorbike trip I had spent five years saving up for. Before the Soviets had forced the local populations into concrete housing projects, most of the people out here lived the lives of nomads. Nearly a century later, in a world of a Starbucks and Wi-Fi, some of those original traveling encampments still remain. I had ridden by some of the camps earlier on the trip, but I never stopped to explore. These six months worth of Duolingo Russian that I had under my belt made for a decent crutch when I was in the city, but I had little faith that it would help me out in the empty plains of the steppe. Yet last night, as I was riding, I found my stomach desperately empty, and a horrible migraine pushed against my aching eyes. I figured hand gestures would do for communication with the locals. They did. When I pushed up my motorcycle to the encampment, a group of children ran up to meet me. Back home, I would have definitely had an issue with strangers touching my bike, but with the amount of mud and dust on it, a few fingerprints wouldn't make a difference. The children ran their fingers across the tires. I pressed my hands to my mouth. They took me to a tent with goat stew. Behind the pot sat an old woman wearing a wolfskin coat. I pressed my hands to my mouth once more and she served me the broth. The migraine burning in the back of my skull took away much of the pleasure that the meal had to offer. But by the time the bowl was empty, my stomach was full. The woman smiled at me politely as I ate. Yet when I tried to pay her with one of the colorful notes I had exchanged in the city... Her demeanor changed. She studied the money, and then she studied me. After a brief, frustrated monologue in a language that I did not understand, 
she yelled at something out of the tent. For a couple flickers of the stove, we sat in silence, unable to resolve whatever problem existed with the money. And then the tent door opened. A man my age walked in. The guy was a blend of culture. He wore a thick fur cap and the bristly beard of a nomad. Both his pants and shoes looked homemade. Yet he also wore a Coca-Cola t-shirt and held a plastic calculator in his hand. The old woman took the machine. 10,000. The old woman gestured at the monochrome screen. And then she cleared it. 500. She pointed at the calculator with purpose. I had no idea what she was trying to tell me. And this frustrated her even further. She said something to the man. Speaking Russian? He asked in a language I understood. Yes, I said. He relayed my message. The old woman immediately darted out of the yurt. Outside, a horse galloped off into the stop. You have given too much money, the man wearing the Coca-Cola t-shirt had said. Mother is going to take smaller money from neighbor. I tried to remember the Russian words for distance or time, but I couldn't. How long is neighbor? The man seemed to have a crisis of words as well. He picked up the calculator and showed me a number. Three. I didn't know what to do with that information, but I embraced it. Where from? The man asked in broken Russian. Australia, I replied. The man flashed his yellow teeth in excitement. Oh, shrimp on the barbie, he said, in thickly accented English. Kangaroo. I laughed. For a moment, I forgot about my migraine. How are you? The man asked, excited to be speaking English. Eh, good, but my head hurts. I said remembering my migraine. He said something that I couldn't understand. Head hurting? He asked in Russian. Need medicine, man. I grasped at words that no language app would teach me. Smoking? I finally asked. The man nodded. I didn't know how long three was and the prospect of smoking grass in the step sounded like an adventure. I took out another 10,000 note. I hoped that $30 Australian would do. The man nodded more vigorously. This way, he said, taking my money. He led me into another yurt, a larger one. A group of men sat around the fire, passing around a pipe. I had hoped for a baggie, but the strange gathering intrigued me. The yurt vibrated with the deep tones of a melancholic throat song. The men around the fire were making sounds that I didn't know human beings were capable of. Without pausing the music, they made room for me to sit. This was the adventure that I had left home for. Thirty minutes later, I was running around the stop, ignoring the voice of God. My wallet is still in my pocket. No one stole my bike. Even my backpack and camping gear looked untouched. Past the exhaustion from last night's rapture, I feel the wave of relief. I also feel hungry. When I enter the tent, the old woman immediately gets up from her broth and presses a bunch of notes into my hand. I fish out a 500 and press it to my mouth. 
She takes the money and gives me a bowl of stew. As I eat, the old woman continues to stir the pot. Quietly, she hums herself a little song. My soul is still in flux from last night. I feel like I both won the lottery and had an acute mental breakdown. I convinced myself that everything I had seen the night prior was simply the product of heavy psychedelics, but something in me feels changed. It feels like something really happened the night before. I try to figure out if I'm happy. I can't. I just know that I'm happier than I was back home. Boomerang. A voice interrupts our reflection. Crocodile Dundee, how are you? Good, I say. How are you? I am Smile, the man says confidently. He tries formulating another English sentence but gives up. Good smoke. Medicine man help. I realize that the headache is gone. I feel happy. Yes, headache gone. I spoke to a turtle. Somewhere in the back of my mind, a duolingo chime echoes. The man laughs. We have strong medicine here. What did the turtle want? He wanted me to go to. The name of that horrid place scratches across my mind. Every syllable of that name sticks to my tongue like hot glue. He wanted me to go to the scientific installation. The flame beneath the pot hisses. The old woman stops humming. She starts shouting. The mood in the yurt quickly turns hostile. Out. You leave now. The man bellows in a language that I could understand. Never using those words here. Out. I try to apologize. I try to understand, but their fury is relentless. Saying the name of the place out loud vocalizing those horrible sounds. It has made me unwelcome in the encampment. When I leave the yurt, the world outside is silent and still. Everyone has stopped what they were doing to stare at me. Even the pipe smokers from last night stand outside of their tent watching me. They're shaking their heads in sorrow, as if I had done a great misdeed. The encampment disappears in my side view mirror within minutes but it remains in my mind as I ride. I went on this journey to seek the unknown, to experience other ways of life, but the look that old woman had in her eyes makes me wish that I had stayed at home. Beyond me, the road stretches out into nothingness. Each kilometer of the step looks identical to the last one, and I lose all semblance of time. I find my eyes tearing up, I stop the bike and I put on my goggles. I hope that it's the dust of the step that was making my eyes water, but it's not. I find myself sobbing beneath my helmet. My spawn. The world whispers as I pull my bike over to the side of the road. My brother, fruit of my soul. We should have known the true name of the dead place would be too much for the uninitiated. We apologize for the unnecessary pain. I feel the rough grass of the step on my face. I'm curled up on the ground, crying tears of unsolicited, unbearable joy. Your help is still needed, common traveler. Your aid is still of the utmost importance for the well-being of the world. 
We plead with you. Heed the directions. Commit to your duty. My body shivers under the blast of incomprehensible emotions, and I can scarcely see the world past my tear-filled eyes. Somewhere deep inside, I am scared. Somewhere deep inside of me, there is sheer terror, provoked by the loss of control over my mind and body. Yet the inescapable fire of wholeness in my heart washes out the fear. I belong to the voice. I am a part of the voice. The voice that speaks to me is everything that has ever existed. What? The words struggle out of my clenched throat. What do you want me to do, God? We need you to travel to the place where we are powerless. We need you to quell the spread of the infection. We need you to save us. I nearly choke on the words. How? How do I help? Through my strange yelps, an outside observer would not understand me. Yet the universe comprehends clearly. The baggage which you travel with contains a metal lock. It is a simple mechanism, but it will do. We implore you to travel to the dead place. We implore you to lock its doors so that the evil that dwells within harms no other. I crawl to my bike and reach into my backpack. I don't recall packing any metal locks, but as soon as I reach in, I feel it. It's like my hand is a magnet, as if the lock was destined to fit into my palm. I have the lock, I say. My voice is starting to clear. The unbearable ecstasy is descending into a simple good mood. For a moment, I feel like I can withstand the presence around me without bursting into tears. As soon as it speaks again, however, my eyes flood once more. Good, the heavens say, revealing the sun. Now travel to the dead place and fulfill your duty to life itself. The roads will lead you where you must go. I take a couple of deep breaths to steady myself and get on my motorcycle. I grip the handlebars hard and pray that the voice won't speak during a sharp turn. It doesn't. All that keeps me company throughout the journey is the warm sun and the sharp wind in my face. The road no longer seems aimless and the step no longer seems barren. I can sense every single bush that litters the plain before me, the mountains beyond beckon me closer. My existence is brimming with purpose. Now I do not understand what is happening, but I know that I'm doing God's work. I know that I'm traveling to the scientific installation to save life itself. Whatever heavenly presence burning in my chest lasts for most of the journey, yet as the land before me turns from barren earth to woodlands, I start to feel alone. We have arrived. The trees above me whisper as the road touches a forest clearing. From here, you must continue on foot. The voice is still there. That presence of utter goodness and joy still lingers in the air. But I feel alone. We cannot guide you the whole way. Our power wanes the closer you walk to the dead place. You must take this journey alone. With every step I take into the forest, I feel that sense of cosmic wholeness seep away. 
The wilderness around me is beautiful and unkempt, but beneath it, all I feel is ugly conformity. Beneath the tranquility of the forest, I can feel the scientific installation. There are dangers lurking in the forest, dangers which will attempt to hinder your quest. The ground beneath me whispers in a strained, powerless tone. Beware the moat of cursed water that surrounds the place you seek. Beware the forces of the forest. Beware the bright-eyed scientist. The trees around me are lush and green and filled with birds. Yet the further into the woods that I walk, the less healthy the world feels. From all the dangers which you must be aware of, there is one that is of paramount importance. Do not look into the place. Do not gaze into the cursed place. The voice grows raspy and weak. Do not look inside of it. The name of the place no longer makes me flee, but it still stirs terror in my heart. I am alone. The sky goes gray and the trees grow thin. The grass is diseased and the animals are silent. I walk through a steadily dying world, clutching at the mysterious lock in my palm for comfort. At first, the felled trees are a rarity, but soon enough, the sight of them turns regular. The forest withers before my eyes until there is nothing left but dead shrubbery. In a clearing, surrounded by dead plants and mud, stands a large cement building. It has no windows, only a single set of rusted doors. Around the lifeless structure, there is a large ditch filled with murky water. Everything around me is still, yet the moat shimmers and pulses with a foreign life. I pay it no mind. I ignore the horrid stillness in the air and jump over the strange water. A gnawing fear at the core of my being wants me to turn back and run away. Something primal tells me that I'm in a place where I shouldn't be, but I ignore it. As I move towards the building, I remind myself that I'm doing so in service of God. I reach the rusted door. I see the opening for the lock and I feel the metal in my hand. But I don't lock the door just yet. The strange woman, the medicine man, the voice. One day of insanity had made the whole trip worth it. Yet suddenly, I am consumed by curiosity. I want to know what is behind the door. I want to see the thing that even my maker is terrified of. The pull of the forbidden is irresistible. A magnetic tear in reality demands me to grab the handle. I can't resist it. A dark roar reverberates through my soul. A filthy, toxic stew brews in my stomach. Something inside of me wants to see the scientific installation. I try to remind myself of the heavenly directives I was given. I try to ignore the pull towards the dead place, but I can't. From the other side of the door, I hear a low, throaty groan. It is as unnatural and fascinating as the throat songs of the pipe smokers. Just a peek. I promise myself it's just a peek. Immediately, I regret it. Before me is a surprisingly clean, fluorescent-lit hallway. A man stands in front of me. There's something behind him, but my eyes recoil towards the familiar. 
Middle-aged, drab suit, bushy mustache. There's something behind him, but my eyes refuse to look. The man's eyes are shut. His eyebrows are furrowed. He's shaking his head from side to side. There's something behind him and it's coming closer. You shouldn't have come here. The man says in Russian, his voice grave and his eyes shut. No one should ever come here. For a split second, I force my eyes to look at the thing behind him. Tears of terror dull my eyesight. I slam the door shut and hook the metal. My mind exists in a universe of sheer panic, but I will double check the lock. I triple check the lock. My body will not let me leave until I am certain that the thing inside cannot get out. Only when I am sure that the abomination is contained do I run away. It is through pure luck that I get past the dead shrubbery unscathed. My mind is elsewhere. My mind is thinking of the blood, the metal, the arteries, the claws. My mind is cursed with visions of the evil that dwells within the scientific installation. When the forest path turns green once more, I meet a stranger. A man dressed in a thick jacket carrying a thermos. He is walking towards the building. When he sees me, he smiles and waves. I do not return the pleasantries. I grab him. I grab him and beg him not to continue down the path. I try to warn him of the pulsating monstrosity that haunts the halls of the scientific installation, but I fail. He doesn't understand me. His smile quickly fades and he looks at me like I'm a drunk. I try to reason with him, but he continues walking down the path. I cannot stop him. I dare not take one step closer to the thing. With guilt in my panicked stomach, I run back to my bike and drive away as far as I can. The voice assures me that I have done a good deed. The voice assures me that I have saved the world. But I do not feel victorious. I do not feel the cosmic sense of belonging, the communing with the heavens instilled in before me. I do not feel good about traveling so far from home. All I feel is fear. What I have seen inside of the scientific installation is an affront to all that is good. It is an affront to life itself. It is powerful and large and beyond comprehension. I have only seen it for a handful of seconds, but the weight of its visage is something that I will carry with me to the grave. I fear the thing that lives inside of the scientific installation. I fear that a simple metal lock cannot hold it. My boyfriend and I went camping alone, but something else got in our tent. Written by Yugen Grouchy. I want to start this off by stating that I don't really consider myself an expert camper, if that's even the proper term. I'm somewhat of a novice. At least when compared to my boyfriend who's been on countless of outings all over the country since he was a teen. I would never make it on my own. While he would probably find a way to send smoke signals with his butt even on a rainy day. I think that should paint a clear enough picture of where we both stand on the subject. But if there's one thing that we share in common, 
It's the fact that we've read and heard all kinds of strange, creepy, and downright unexplainable things happening in remote locations. Of course, when it comes to the internet, you'll just have to take it all with a grain of salt. But even when it comes to some fellow campers that we've met on the road, you just never know. Sure, they don't really have a reason to lie, but then again, what's the harm? They tell some random nobodies a weird story that they came up with just for kicks, and in the process, they might even get them to scare themselves later on by overthinking it. Like I said, I'm not an experienced camper, but I'm no stranger to it either. Anyone that's ever gone camping will likely tell you that it's only natural to hear something weird every now and then. But hey, that's just nature for you. You eventually get over it, as my boyfriend said. But I'm pretty sure there's no getting over whatever the heck happened to us. It happened on the second night of what was supposed to be a four-day trip. The first thing I recall is suddenly waking up in the middle of the night with the weirdest sensation almost as if I hadn't been sleeping at all before that, which is just weird to me. I heard some noise right outside of her tent, and upon realizing that my boyfriend wasn't next to me, I quickly came to the conclusion that the leaking sound outside was, well, him taking a leak. No big mystery there, no reason to freak out. He had gotten up to pee, and likely tried his best to make as little noise as possible. But because I've yet to get used to that sort of environment, I guess I can't help waking up due to the slightest thing, whether it's a sound, an itch, or whatever. It wasn't his fault, I thought, just as I was about to roll over to go back to sleep. But I couldn't roll over. I couldn't move. Why couldn't I move? It didn't make sense which was a good enough reason for me to start freaking out, if only fear hadn't gotten to me first. Just as soon as the words sleep paralysis popped up in my head, I realized what was going on. It's not that I couldn't literally move because my body wasn't responding, because I could tell that it was with what little sensation I left before the chills took over but rather, something was keeping me in place with the strangest but firmest grip. I could clearly feel these pressure-like sensations throughout my body, mostly on my arms, wrists and shoulders, and legs, occurring almost instantly whenever I tried to shift my position in any way I could, and preventing me from doing so. Just as I was about to call out to my boyfriend, however, a pressure manifested itself right on my throat, almost as if a weight had been dropped on it. Once more, another similar yet eerily distinct sensation appeared to cover my mouth. It felt cold, bony and dry, like a branch or something like that. But even in that near darkness, my boyfriend had lit up a small lamp outside. I could see that there wasn't anything on me, and yet I couldn't bring myself to utter a single word. I could barely make a sound at my desperate state, and the more that I tried to fend off this invisible force, the harder its grasp got. I did whatever I could, but it wasn't until I heard the voice that I stopped completely, out of fear more than anything else. Thank you. 
It said, almost like a raspy whisper traveling along with the night breeze. My eyes quickly shifted to where my boyfriend was, right outside of the tent. It couldn't have been him. I knew it couldn't have been him. The voice didn't belong to him, but whose could it be? Even in my current state, I was able to tell that there wasn't anyone else inside the tent with me. But all signs seemed to indicate a very different reality than the one I was experiencing. Warm. So warm. It continued. It took me a moment. But once I had added the voice on top of all the other weird things that happened since I had woke up, I instantly realized that those pressure-like sensations that were keeping me put felt a lot like hands and fingers holding me down. Same as the ones over my throat and mouth. Thank you for being warm. By this point, tears were already streaming down my face as hundreds of thoughts flashed across my mind, each one darker than the last. My boyfriend eventually walked back inside of the tent, completely oblivious to what I was going through. I tried to get his attention, but sadly, eyeballs bulging out of their sockets due to absolute terror isn't something that makes a whole lot of noise. He just laid down next to me, unaware of it all. I mean, I can't blame him. From his perspective, he had gotten up to take a leak, and had no reason to believe that he had woken me up in the process. I feared he was going to fall asleep and leave me alone with whatever was happening, but then he mumbled something. I waited, not that there was much else for me to do. Yeah? He asked. After another brief pause, he continued. Babe, what is it? Stop nudging me. But I wasn't. I wasn't doing anything because I couldn't. And if it wasn't me... He finally turned to face me. But as soon as our eyes had met and he saw the terror that had taken hold of me, I saw him fall victim to the exact same thing. Unable to move and unable to speak, just like me, all I could do was lock eyes with his gaze, as it gradually showed confusion, frustration, and finally fear. All so warm, the voice spoke again, and judging by my boyfriend's reaction, I could tell that he had heard it too. Now I wasn't crazy, something was really going on, and whatever it was, we were completely powerless against it. I don't know how exactly how long we stayed there just like that, completely motionless, staring into each other's eyes with tears rolling down our cheeks. Unable to comfort one another when we were so certain that our lives were about to end. I lost track of time. It had become meaningless. Especially with that voice constantly spewing crazy nonsense right in our ears throughout the entire ordeal. As if someone else was right in between the two of us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being warm. So, so warm. Warm, 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 warm. I just want to be warm. Warm again. My boyfriend and I eventually snapped back to reality almost at the same time. By then, it was already morning, but we could tell that we hadn't gotten a second of sleep. Just by looking at each other's faces, we knew we both had experienced that thing for real. 
It hadn't been a nightmare or a shared delusion of any kind. We quickly packed up and got the heck out of there while barely exchanging any words. On our way back, we came across an officer from the US Forest Service, who was able to tell almost instantly that something bad had happened to us. My boyfriend tried to shrug it off. He just wanted to get out of there and go home. But I couldn't help myself and I blurted out some things about what had happened. I didn't even think. It probably all sounded like gibberish from a crazy lady, talking about a mysterious presence that got inside their tent. But the officer kept a calm and respectful, yet somehow somber face throughout the entire exchange. First, he made sure that we weren't in need of any urgent medical attention, and then he called for a vehicle to come and pick us up, before dropping us off at one of their small offices located nearby. He told us that we didn't have to if we didn't want to, but that he would greatly appreciate it if we could each provide a separate statement in regards to what happened that night. My boyfriend declined and insisted for me to do the same, but I didn't listen to him. After what we had been put through, it felt good having other people around you, ready to hear you out and not dismiss you right away. What's more, I could tell from my boyfriend's behavior that this is the sort of thing he would just want to put a lid on and never bring up again. So if I was ever going to talk openly about it and hope to get some kind of explanation in return, it was now or never. And plus the whole thing was still relatively fresh in my mind. For better or worse, so I just had to do it. The officer was really cool and respectful, and I hope I'm not getting anyone in trouble by saying this but I recorded most of our conversation with my phone without his knowledge or consent. I know that it's probably against the law, but the reason I did it is because I wanted to make sure that I didn't forget any of the things that he told me. You'll have to forgive me for that, but please do take into consideration my state of mind at the time. I was still somewhat out of it, not to mention the fact that we hadn't gotten any sleep or rest either. I was just making sure that I kept a proper record of it all for posterity, since I couldn't trust my brain to take notes of all the things that he said and remember them down the line. I'm leaving out names, dates, and actual locations for that purpose alone, to avoid getting anyone into trouble. Once I had finished telling the whole thing, from beginning to end, he asked me to mark the location of our camp as accurately as possible on one of his maps. I gave him the precise location, and right after doing so, he drew a circular radius around it, which perplexed me a little. The more that I studied his pensive expression, the more convinced I became that this wasn't anything new to him. In fact, not only was it not new, it was actually something that required some actual, on-the-field work from him which left me somewhat distraught. After all, if you were to tell most people a similar story to what happened to us, they would just shrug it off as it being your imagination's fault, I think. When I politely asked him what the deal was, he apologized and said that it was nothing, that they would take over from here and comb the area to see if they would find something. I didn't believe him and called him out on it before I even realized it, much to my shame, but he was very understandable. And this is where I'll quote some of the things that he said to me. Look lady, I've been doing this for quite a while, 
and I've heard and seen all sorts of things. I can't tell you any more than that because it wouldn't be right, you understand. It wouldn't be fair to you. You just experienced something you can't quite logically, rationally explain. And now you want answers. I get that. But I'm not in a position to give those to you. Maybe it was all in your head and maybe it wasn't. What I'm trying to say is that it's part of our job to shoulder that burden. It is not yours to carry. Many campers lose their lives each year. Most in unfortunate but preventable accidents. While others... And then there's those who happen to experience some things that just make them come out of the woods all shell-shocked and the like, but certain that they'll never set foot in a similar setting ever again, for as long as they breathe. You're alright, miss. A little shaken, a little dehydrated, but you're alright. You're going to be okay, you and your partner. And that is really the only thing that matters. You're alive and you're okay. And the only thing I wish for you is for you to forget about what happened. No matter how hard and impossible the idea may seem to you at this time. No, it's not worth it. Trust me on this one. If you try and figure things out on your own, not that I'm saying that there are things that need to figure it out, mind you. You'll just keep on spiraling down an endless rabbit hole. It's not worth it. What happened to you could have happened to anyone else. You just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not about you and it has nothing to do with you. That much, I can assure you. But you best be certain that we'll take care of it. It's what we do. When I asked him if he had ever seen or heard similar reports to what I described, he made a little grimace, clearly trying to fight off the urge to tell me more than he should. He waved his hand, declining to answer, but knowing as well as I did that, he had answered me in the process. Finally, when I asked him if I could leave my contact number for him to call me at a later time, maybe once the issue was resolved, and he could tell me all about it, his response was very swift and pointless to contest. No, I'm sorry, but no. You've done more than enough. In fact, you've helped us out tremendously. Thank you for your time. Afterwards, they drove us all the way out of the area and dropped us near the city, from where we eventually made our way back home. It's been a little weird ever since, with my boyfriend not wanting to discuss the events, almost as if he's pretending that nothing happened at all. I can't tell if the whole thing just scared him to his core, or if there's something more to it. Either way, it helps being back in the city and being surrounded by all this noise and people, but I don't know what's next for me. Part of me wants to follow the officer's advice, I'll admit that I'm still as curious as ever, cautiously so, but I know the man who was not only speaking truthfully, but from experience as well. I really want to let it go because that is probably for the best, but it's not that easy, especially with the internet at your disposal just a couple of swipes away, and a whole world of information and people out there ready to share their stories and knowledge with you. This incident might have put my boyfriend off camping for a while, maybe permanently for all I know, but I can't say the same for me, I think. Maybe I'll go back someday on my own. I really don't know why I would, but that's the me talking right now. Who knows, in time, I might just find a good enough reason.
Something has been knocking at my door at 3 a.m. every night. Written by B. Vampire. The apartment building is quite old. Originally, there were two buildings built in the late 80s, both perched above the steep bluff of a small river, which runs right through the center of the city, like a mini fjord and ends up in a bay in the north. Both were permanently abandoned in the mid-90s when a political riot erupted during which many lost their lives including those who passed when one of the twin buildings caught fire. The other one left intact, then dubbed the Green River Apartment by the locals, who still remembered the fire incident. It was repurchased, renovated, and turned into a modern, regular resident in the early 2010s. I had been looking for a small, comfy, and affordable place for myself when my father found an ad in the local paper. It didn't take me long to make up my mind, and my father had agreed to help me with the down payment. During my first weeks of living there, I got to befriend some of my neighbors. The quiet, pale-looking German guy across from me, and the married couple with a teenage boy next door. The German guy mostly keeps to himself, though. He sometimes has friends over every Saturday night. The family next door are friendlier and we have become quite well acquainted with one another. That we sometimes have long conversations in the corridor while their son plays with my dog. I remember one night around 3am, waking up to the muffled sound of someone knocking in the corridor. It was coming from the other end of the corridor which opened to a small balcony overlooking the river. It was not loud enough to awake the whole floor, but really persistent, as if whoever it was was keen on being let inside. They kept knocking all night and then quieted down after a while. It was only when the morning came that I was informed of the origin of the mysterious knocking by my friendly neighbors. I ran into the husband and their son at the top of the stairs. He is a portly man in his thirties with an ever-present, friendly grin on his red face. His son looked exactly like a slimmer and younger version of himself. They both have curly, fiery red hair. Oh, the elevator acting up again, he asked me with a grin. Yeah, bummer. Oh, I thought so. Someone was having a good laugh last night, don't you think? I remarked, shaking my head. He frowned at me. Didn't you hear the knocking? Were they drunk or what? Suddenly, he looked pale as if I had just said something that bothered him immensely. Oh, goodness, I forgot to tell you. Joe would kill me if... Oh, never mind. She told me to talk to you about this as soon as you were settled in. He narrowed his eyes on his son. Keep your mouth shut, okay, son? Told me what? I stared at him in confusion. There hadn't been new tenants for months when you moved in, so it's understandable that I forgot. Man, what is it? What do you want to tell me? He motioned for his son to leave and then took a deep breath before he managed to pull himself together. There's an unspoken rule here in this building among the old tenants. 
If you hear a knock at your door after midnight, don't open it ever. Ignore it. The rule includes no talking to it or acknowledging its presence. It will eventually move on to the other doors. Sometimes it would stay longer on one door. Sometimes it would only knock once or twice before moving on. Sometimes it would come earlier too. But everyone knows the rule. Don't open the door. It was my turn to frown at him now. Why not, and who is it, and what do they want? He motioned for me to lower my voice and looked around nervously, as if wanting to make sure that nobody was within earshot. We don't talk about it. We moved here about ten years ago. Old Caleb was still a baby then, and the old woman across from us, she already moved out to live with her son last year. Well, she had told us about the rule and the tragedy that happened years ago. Oh, the fire, yeah, I know about that. I told him, still unsure where he was going with his story. You know, the other building, the one that caught fire. It was demolished shortly afterwards and the place where it once stood is now the parking lot. The lady also told us that the people who lived in this building back then started to experience strange things a few weeks after that. Disembodied voices asking for help in the middle of the night, and people smelling what they described as burning. And then the knocking started and it drove everyone insane. It didn't happen like every night, but whenever it did, they knew not to open the door. It happens less and less frequently these days, so yeah, it's kind of hard to believe it. Are you telling me that this building is haunted or something? I looked at him in disbelief. By the spirits of those who perished in the fire. That's what they believed, he shrugged. What if it's just a prank? Some stupid kid's trying to mess with you. He sighed and shook his head impatiently. They did think of that possibility. They had already checked these security cameras and they found nothing. Nobody was wandering the corridor when it happened. It was empty. How can you tell if it's not just... Maybe a friend or a family member wanting to see you... In the middle of the night. You said that it shows up early sometimes. Like how early? Seven, nine. So how can you tell? I asked him, still feeling skeptical. He clenched his jaw a little while looking me dead in the eye. You'll know... You'll hear her, he replied mysteriously. Have any of you ever opened the door to see who or what it was? Yes. Who and what happened? He opened his mouth and paused, and glancing out the window toward the parking lot, which looked almost deserted with only a handful of cars soaking up the morning sun. Okay, Joe doesn't want me to tell you this, but you need to know. It happened last year. It was shortly after midnight. I was about to fall asleep when I heard a blood-curdling scream coming from the new tenant next to us. The poor guy had just moved in a week before, and nobody had bothered to warn him. Those idiots. We would have, but we had been away visiting Joe's parents in Denver. We found him kneeling on the floor in his doorway, shaking all over, sobbing like a little girl, his door wide open. 
We asked him what was wrong, but all he could say was that it was coming to get him and that he was going to die. He moved out the following morning. I haven't heard from him since then. It's my apartment, wasn't it? I asked him. He gave me a look that was meant to say that he was sorry and he didn't mean to scare me. Has anyone told the landlord about this? I pressed him. Told him what? That a restless ghost is haunting the building. He let out a mirthless laugh. He wouldn't even care if this whole building were infested by a herd of zombies. That old cow. Well, you just told me that this building is haunted by some restless ghost and it's been disturbing the peace. Ghost, he corrected me. Listen, man, you don't believe it, fine. But don't you start pulling a Sherlock on it now. Ignore it if you ever hear it. Whatever it is, it means more harm than good. Don't invite it in. We like you very much. Well, especially Joe. You remind her of her younger brother who died in an accident many years ago. You look just like him. You know, lanky, a bit awkward. Dark, curly hair. We like having you as our neighbor. He patted me on the shoulder. Gotta go now. And Joe's waiting. And just like that, he started walking down the corridor to his apartment in unhurried, fatherly strides, leaving me befuddled in his wake. Not knowing what to make of what he had just told me, I decided to brush it off as people being paranoid due to living next to a phantom building where many lives were lost. Two days later, I woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of my front door being knocked on lightly. This time, I could also hear heavy, ragged breathing wheezing in and out, as if whatever was making it were on the verge of dying. I didn't get out of bed, or even so much as twitch, but listened intently. They knocked a few more times while whispering something that did not make any sense at all under their breath, and they moved on to my neighbor, the friendly couple next door. They lingered there for a while, knocking slightly louder and more persistently while I was wondering if my neighbors were wide awake or asleep, unbothered by the mysterious midnight disturbance. The knocking had woken up my dog, Pedro, as well. His ears perked up while he glanced at the bedroom door as if sensing something outside. I stayed up until late in the morning listening to the knocking as it quieted down feeling uneasy and apprehensive about the whole thing. It took me about a month to finally settle down and get used to every corner in my new apartment. I love my new bedroom. The window opens to an amazing view of the river below, with willow trees and small patches of flowering bulbs lining up on its steep bluff. It was a cold and windy day and I had just gotten home, hungry and exhausted but thrilled to have a few days off of work to enjoy myself. I decided I might be up for a little post-work hookup. All thoughts about the door-to-door -door haunting had already been forgotten. I just cleaned up the whole apartment and rearranged the furniture and was fiddling with my phone on Tinder in the living room with Pedro when a notification blipped on the screen. Somebody had matched with me. I tapped on it and the picture of a dark-haired girl with a freckled face popped out. She had that sort of look which made it tricky to guess her age. She looked like she was in her early 20s and late 30s all at the same time. 
On her profile, it said that she wasn't looking for anything serious either, but would let herself go with the flow if somebody piqued her interest. We exchanged numbers and chatted for a bit, and then I invited her over and she said yes. I was so excited that I hopped off the couch, healed off my shoes, and stormed into the shower immediately. It was 20 minutes past 10. Exactly 35 minutes later, I heard a light knock at the door. Mating call. Coming. I tried to sound like I hadn't been too excited waiting for her to arrive, just in case she decided that I was a loser. Well, in a way I was, a little. And I booked it before we even met face to face. I rushed into the living room and down the narrow hallway leading to the front door almost knocking down stacks of old thick magazines and newspapers piled up against the wall in my hurried state. And then another knock was heard. It almost made me stop right in my tracks. It sounded hollow and flat. For a split second, my neighbor's warning from the other day flashed into my head, but I chose to ignore it. I was expecting a guest anyway. I swung the door open, Try not to grin like an idiot and saw nothing. The long corridor outside looked eerily empty and deserted. No pretty brunette standing in front of my door, beaming up at me which I'd been imagining for the last few minutes. Well, that's weird, I thought to myself, stepping out into the corridor. I left the door ajar behind me and walked towards the elevator. The digital display told me that the cars were still on the ground floor. Nobody had used the elevator. A gust of cold night breeze blew in through the open balcony, and I began to shiver a little. It was more unpleasant than invigorating. Who the heck had knocked at my door? A ghost. I felt chills which had nothing to do with the cold night air, and I shrugged it off. I was about to step back inside when I heard Pedro let out a shrill, angry bark that I had never heard him make before from somewhere in the kitchen. He barked again louder and whimpered, and then I saw him poke his head out from behind the sofa in the living room, as if checking if I was there with him. As soon as he saw me, he instantly scampered across the hallway and ducked in between my legs. Hey buddy, what's wrong with you? I picked him up and kicked the door shut behind me and then walked back into the living room. Nervous about our guest too, huh? You want some snacks? I grabbed his empty Donald Duck plate from under my desk in the corner and filled it with his favorite meal. He sniffed it a little and then turned his head to look at me confused and he started whimpering again. What? Please, buddy, not now. He scurried under my desk and let out a long, sad howl which made me scratch my head in confusion. He seemed a bit on edge for some reasons and I had no idea what had caused it. I sighed and proceeded to crouch down on the floor and reach out to give him a reassuring pat on his head. But to my surprise, he bared his teeth at me, as if not recognizing who I was. Jesus, what's with the attitude? Been sniffing my shoe polish again, have we? I shook my head at him in disapproval. But he ignored me and kept glancing back and forth into the hallway and over my shoulder toward the kitchen. For God's sake, are we going to do this all night? I scolded him. Go to your room now. 
I stood back up and narrowed my eyes at him. He took a last glance into the kitchen, ducked out from under the desk and again, to my surprise, rounded the big table in the middle of the room, which took him a bit longer to get to the bedroom. Instead of making it through the narrow space between the long sofa and the kitchen doorway, I spent a few seconds staring into the enclosed darkness within the kitchen, feeling befuddled and proceeded to make my way across the living room when somebody knocked on my door again for the second time that night. Having completely forgotten about my day plan, I shuffled quickly into the hallway ready to teach whoever it was a lesson that they would never forget. I opened the door and to my surprise, found myself standing face to face with a dark haired girl in a periwinkle sweater and jeans. I must have looked like I was about to attack someone because she raised her eyebrows quizzically at me and shrugged. Hi, I'm Julia. She greeted me casually. Changed your mind already? She continued with a subtle hint of uncertainty mixed with humor. She didn't sound like what I had expected. Her voice was deeper and a bit more throaty for someone so petite and sweet looking. Oh no, 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 it's uh... The kid next door was pulling a prank on me and getting on my nerves really. I explained myself and contorted my face into a friendly yet awkward smile at the speed of light, which I was pretty sure made me look like Bruce, the well-meaning shark from Finding Nemo. I thought it was him knocking on my door again. Oh, you're expecting another guest? She asked again, amused. No, God no, it's not like that. Sometimes the kid next door loves to play pranks on the people who live in this building. I rolled my eyes and she let out a really cute laugh which kind of reminded me of a sexy anime character from a TV show that I used to watch a lot growing up. I opened the door wider to let her in but suddenly a loud growl, followed by a long, guttural bark erupted through the hallway. Pedro was standing on the threshold of the bedroom, barking his head off. He arched his body and his hackles went up. I sighed. Whoops, it looks like somebody isn't too pleased to see me, she sneered. No, it's just my dog. I hurried back into the living room, looking back and forth at her and Pedro. I don't know what's gotten into him. He's been acting strange tonight. Come in and please shut the door again. I stared at my dog in frustration. He stopped barking and started to whimper as I clenched my mouth and gave him a scrutinizing look. What did I tell you about being a good boy when we have a guest over? I fretted, shaking my head in disbelief. Go to bed and don't come out until I say so. Again, he let out a low whining noise but slowly retreated inside. I'm really sorry, I don't... I stared into the hallway and gasped in surprise. The front door was still open but Julia was nowhere to be seen. Hello? Julia... I hurried back to the front door, feeling a bit hurt and confused, but she was gone. I looked around the now empty corridor and the metallic clanking and groaning of the elevator descending had told me that it was no use chasing after her. I stepped back inside and kicked the door shut in frustration. She must have thought that I was one of those weirdos who spent most of their time talking to their dogs and decided to book it at the last minute. I stormed into my bedroom to find Pedro lying in bed looking up at me with those big brown eyes of his. I huffed and raised a finger at his face. That wasn't nice, young man. Not nice at all. 
I lowered my voice so he knew that I was angry at him. Of all the times you've chosen to be bad, why now? When I was about to, uh, I mean. And then somewhere in the hallway, several dull thoughts echoed off the walls. I froze instantly. Somebody was in my apartment. Stay there, I say to Pedro in a barely audible whisper. He just stood there on the bed in silence, as if understanding at the magnitude of the situation we were in. I tiptoed into the living room, trying not to make any noise and alert the intruder. The living room was eerily silent and empty, devoid of any sign of trespassing. I stared into the darkened, long hallway and saw the heavy stacks of magazines scattered on the floor, as if somebody had just knocked them off in their haste to get inside, but the door was still closed. Hello? I called out hesitantly. I started to walk across the living room towards the magazines, but then I felt a gust of air on my back, as if somebody was darting past behind me. I yelped and instantly whirled around to see nothing. The kitchen was dark, a square shaped mass of blackness engraved into the white wall. My breathing grew louder as I walked slowly towards the dark opening, squinting my eyes to catch the slightest movement or outline of something hiding in there. Deciding to end this terror quickly once and for all, I stepped inside and lunged for the light switch in the far corner, already feeling creeped out. And right before I flicked it on, I sensed a movement off to my right, and then something cold and wet brushed against the tips of my fingers. I gasped and cringed away in great terror as bright blinding light flooded the whole kitchen. I stood there bewildered, scanning the whole room, looking for anything out of the ordinary, my heart thumping in my chest, a chill running down my spine. What the heck? There would have been a little chance of not being seen in such a small room if somebody had been there and not wouldn't there. But there I was, staring at the fridge and the stove suspiciously, questioning my own sanity as if I had only been imagining things. Just then, I heard a loud buzzing sound from behind me, and I cursed at myself for being easily scared by practically anything. It was my phone which I had left on silent at my desk. I reached out to grab it and was surprised to see Julia's name flashed across the screen. I picked it up, still feeling awkward about her abruptly leaving, but also confused and creeped out by what had just happened. Hey Evan, sorry I just left like that, but you didn't tell me you're that kind of person. You could have told me, you know. I stared at my phone screen perplexed. What the heck was she talking about? Listen, if it's the talking to my dog thing that threw you off, I 100% get that. But he's family, so he gets to stay. There would be no working around it even if you had decided to stay tonight. I explained myself, still feeling a bit embarrassed but trying to play it off. What? She sounded confused. No, you didn't tell me that there is somebody else there with you in your apartment. I thought it was just going to be the two of us. You know, having fun. Talking and stuff. What the? If you hate dogs so much then, I don't think we can. Jesus, stop talking to me like I'm an idiot. So what? You and your friend are looking for a guest star to spice up your night a little bit. She said in an accusing tone. What are you on about? Is this a joke or something? 
You could have told me that I looked ugly in person, and I'm fine with that. Not one of your typical lovey-dovey pale green eyed dudes, huh? You didn't have to call me and pretend like you're a saint or something, and didn't want to hurt my feelings and... Come on now. She let out a mirthless chuckle. I have no idea what you're talking about. I heard a loud bark and saw Pedro standing on the threshold of my bedroom, looking up at me as if demanding to let him know who I was speaking with. I raised my index finger to motion for him to be silent. Don't play games with me now. It was that weirdo standing behind the couch. Are you drunk or something? So you're telling me that you live all by yourself? You're all alone. I mean, I know there's your dog. But you don't have a girlfriend or anybody else in your apartment now. She said in a lower voice as if just realizing something. Of course not. So who was that girl in your kitchen? What girl? The one wearing the dark sunglasses. Her voice trailed off. I could only hear her raspy and heavy breath on the other line for a few seconds. My God. Oh my God, Evan. I could hear her voice quivering as she spoke. She she wasn't wearing sunglasses. Those Those were her eyes. What are you? Get out. Get out of there, Evan. Get out of your apartment. Go right now. And then I heard a sound that was almost inaudible. It was so faint but still distinguishable from anything else. The soft clicking sound of the light switch being pressed. All the hairs on my body stood on end as I turned my head slowly to glance into the kitchen. Once again, the entrance into the dark realm. This time, I could faintly make out the blurry and vague outline of a person standing eerily still in the corner next to the fridge. Like it was only a part of the wall, blacker than the darkness that it was in. An overwhelming smell suddenly filled the room. It was emanating from the kitchen, unmistakably the stench of something burning, followed by a deep, ragged breathing. Screw it, I yelled and immediately rushed into the hallway as quickly as I could, grabbing a dazed Pedro with two hands, careful not to hurt him. He let out a surprised whine, but I pulled him into my arms and threw the door open. Behind me, I could hear the sounds of heavy feet stomping hard and fast across the living room following us. I ran faster towards the stairs, not bothering to look over my shoulder or even use the elevator. My apartment was on the fourth floor, but I didn't care. I didn't stop until I arrived in the parking lot. I've been staying at my parents for two weeks now. I told them what had happened and they didn't question me anymore. Last night, I was fast asleep in my own bedroom when I woke up to somebody knocking at the door. For a moment, I just lay there staring at the door, shaking all over. It was already inside the house. It knew that I knew it was there. It was toying with me. It's only a matter of time before it opens the door and lets itself in. It's almost three in the morning as I'm typing this. I fear falling asleep. I was already on the cusp of passing out again only a few minutes ago. So I lit another cigarette to stave it off. I'm afraid that by opening my apartment door that night, I have invited something evil not only into my apartment 
but also into my life. Why I'm no longer a park ranger at Spruce Ridge National Park. Written by the General G. When the call about the missing campers and the abandoned campsite came in, I was sitting in front of the park ranger station, watching a fire that crackled in the rusted old pit that had been here for decades. The flames were slowly eating the wood. The heat occasionally sputtered and spat as the pine logs were devoured. That's one of my favorite ways to pass the time out here. A fire. Like watching fish in an aquarium or animals in a zoo. It's endlessly captivating because it's a tiny bit of nature captured and put on display. The same reason people come here to the Spruce Ridge National Park. And just like a fire, the woods here can scorch you if you're not careful. I shuffled back inside, took the call and headed off for the rendezvous point after listening to the report for a few minutes. Another couple gone missing. Nothing too out of the ordinary, at least not yet. So I loaded my gun, hopped in my jeep, and headed out as the sun began to recede past the trees. The searing, summer sun peeked out from between dense fir limbs that surrounded the rocky terrain on all sides, sweeping over the horizon as far as I could see. I passed glimmering ponds filled with algae, and pavilions filled with brown picnic benches, as the jeep bounced up and down on carefully maintained blacktop and rutted brown roads filled with dirt and rock. I could practically hear the croak of frogs, the chirping of crickets, and the hum of a few dragonflies as I sped past. No matter how long I was a park ranger, I never got used to the thrill of the great outdoors. The serenity you could find in the fresh air was eternal, as was its sheer size. It reminds me of pioneer days when it was just a few families alone in the vastness of the frontier. And it was a very unforgiving frontier. Back then, there were no rangers or park security like me to make sure that no families got lost. First aid didn't exist, and Mother Nature never suffered fools. Some people have forgotten that, but Mother Nature never hesitates to remind people about what she can do. Lately, she seems particularly active on that front in these parts. I carefully maneuvered the jeep through hills, which were bigger the farther that I got away from the base. The wind lashed through the cracked windows as I passed fallen cedar trees on the way to my destination. I love these woods, but I never forgot how merciless they can be, and how many people had met their end out here. How many bodies have been buried right here? How many people went out into these woods and simply never came out? There's no way of knowing for sure, but these woods have been around for centuries, and that's enough time for death to plant a seed for every tree out here. I was dispatched to find Libby and Dale Morrison, a well-to-do couple that had gone out on a camping vacation. Their empty campsite had been found by a group of hikers, and since no one had seen the couple for a few days, I was sent out to take a closer look. Funny enough, 
While I've always loved the outdoors, I've never liked camping. You fill out enough missing persons and death reports. You learn fast to treat the woods like a tiger or a lion. They might be stunning to look at, but never forget what can happen when you encounter them. Although plenty of people have wised up and learned how to camp safely, camping in certain places alone is a bit like putting out a candy bowl on Halloween with a please take one sign with no one to watch. Not everyone who walks by has to ignore the rule and do whatever they please. All it takes is one. It may have only taken one person to make my brother-in-law Jerry vanish a few weeks ago. National parks seem so humdrum and tame, but anyone who works in one knows there is a lot of dark things that happen within those trees. Cults will meet here, and drug deals will go down and go wrong. People vanish and plenty of murders all happen within these woods. Biders are dumped here and found days, weeks, or even months later, all torn to pieces from the animals, and no one could figure out how they got that way. I've interviewed plenty of applicants who think this job is some cakewalk and an easy paycheck. They'll get a nasty wake-up call sooner or later, and it either sobers them up or makes them run out of here like they've been chased out. And I've seen things that I don't blame them for wanting to run from. People have been afraid of monsters in the woods for centuries. I don't expect that to change anytime soon, no matter in what modern technology exists. That's why the single best alarm system that's ever existed is man's best friend. The minute a dog starts barking, you know someone or something is here. But when you're outside and your dog whimpers and runs away like the ground is on fire, that's your cue to get out. It's no coincidence that in all the time I've been on duty out here, I've never had to deal with a situation where one or more person involved had a dog. Never. Back at the station that houses my office, there's an entire bulletin board with missing persons flyers. Most of them are couples or entire families. Wholesome looking happy and smiling at the camera, like they don't have a care in the world. Which is usually how they end up on the wall in the first place. I was about to find out whether the Morrisons would join them. It's not a task that I enjoy at all. In the five years that I've had this job, I've taken off maybe ten of those flyers. And not because the people on them were found safe and sound either. Most people on it are the type of people who think because they have GPS and cars with all the latest bells and whistles, that there's nothing to worry about when you camp or venture out into the woods. A lot of people who venture out here have that attitude. If you're lucky, they realize the mistake and they live to talk about it. Other times, not so much. But maybe their fate can help teach others a lesson. I've certainly had to deal with my share of journalists documentary filmmakers, law enforcement officers from various divisions, private investigators and inquiring relatives and friends. The professionals I have no problem dealing with. They're just doing a job the same as me. That's not to say they don't take what happens seriously or feel bad for the parties involved. Not at all. But they're used to dealing with stuff like this for the most part, and it rarely touches them personally. Only rarely do I see the look in their eye that tells me what happened here will haunt them. On the other hand, dealing with family members in that situation is by far the worst part of my job. 
I would rather stumble upon a million bodies that have to deal with grieving family members. I've done it too many times, but it never gets any easier. Never, and it shouldn't. It was dark by the time that I arrived at the Morrison campsite, which was a long way from the main area. As expected, they had spared no expense and had gone camping with the brand new gear that I was certain they had just bought. Brand new equipment, cooking gear, and a black SUV that was still gleaming like it was fresh off the lot. I did have to concede that Mr. and Mrs. Morrison picked a terrific spot, right on the lake. It was a clear night and the moon glistened off the calm surface, which looked like glass. No matter what happened on the job, nighttime was always my favorite time to work or to do anything else, so long as I took proper precautions. I suppose it's the same reason people think about hitting up an old flame late at night. In the modern era, it's easy to look down upon more primitive times, and their fears about what lay just out of sight in the darkness. But come out here at night, when it's pitch dark, those fears suddenly become far more relatable. Modern technology may be the 21st century, but where your flashlight ends, it's the 19th century. All it takes is for your flashlight to run out of batteries, your GPS to fail, or your car to not start. And you're no longer in modern times out here. You're right back where your ancestors were. But at least they knew how to survive in conditions like that. As I looked around the campsite, the stars had gleamed out of the sky and looked brighter than usual. I don't think people think about space, as in really think about it and what it entails. It's a stunning concept to behold. The vastness of the galaxy and all the galaxies beyond it. When you think about it, Earth is nothing more than a tiny apartment and a massive skyscraper when you think of how massive space is. The phrase outer space invokes a gargantuan size and a scale that is unfathomable. When pondering this, the two most terrifying concepts and their implication are that you are completely alone in the universe and that you are not alone in the universe. Which one is more terrifying depends a lot on the person. The phrase, in space, no one can hear you scream, is so much more than a movie tagline. It's a simple fact. Because not only can no one hear you scream, you might not even be able to scream, which is one of the most horrifying feelings a human can experience. It's like calling for an ambulance only to be told that help isn't coming. And the woods are the same way. As it's no coincidence, they refer to space as the final frontier. It's also what makes someone going missing in a huge park like this such a nightmare for a search party. In a populated area, you can rule areas out and narrow things down. But out here in the woods, someone could be literally anywhere. The Morrison campsite wasn't torn to shreds like it had been attacked by a wild animal nor did it resemble the scene of a horror movie. It looked like countless campsites that had been abandoned without an afterthought. Had it not been for their car nearby, I would have thought that they had just left on a whim. Their car, a shiny black Cadillac SUV with a grill hood that gleamed in the light of my flashlight was still here. So that meant they either left in someone else's car, they ran off somewhere outside the park, or they were still here. 
but it wouldn't be the first time I've seen couples ditch one vehicle out here to get in another. So the question was, what had caused the Morrisons to flee from where they had set up shop? It certainly wasn't because they needed to use a bathroom. In my experience, people almost always flee due to fear. But fear of what? I scanned the area slowly with my flashlight. The Morrisons certainly spared no expense. The RV was top of the line, certainly a step up from sleeping in a tent. You don't leave equipment like this for no reason, especially if you're someone with money. A quick check revealed that none of the car's tires had been slashed, and from all appearances, it looked to be in good condition. Since the RV's front door was halfway open, I wasted no time in climbing the metal steps and appearing inside. As expected, everything inside was top of the line. Most of it looked like they had just bought it at the store a week ago. I carefully climbed inside and with one hand on my gun, I slowly checked the bathroom and bedroom. The bathroom was a jumbled mess of tubes and bottles and the bed was unmade, but everything was perfectly in order, nor did it look like anything was stolen. I stepped back outside and started to walk towards my jeep to radio what I had seen. But when I was over halfway there, the skin on my arms prickled and I felt a chill run down my back. And despite the billowing humidity, I was chilled to the bone. I took a deep breath, carefully placed one hand back on my gun, and carefully walked the remaining distance, taking care to keep my back aligned with the RV, as I had the sense I was being watched. I had felt this sensation before, and you never get used to it. And just like dealing with grieving families, you shouldn't. Because if you do... The next grieving family may be yours. With paranoia and fear growing with each step, I mercifully made it to the jeep okay and slammed the door shut. Before I radioed back to the base, I leaned back in the driver's seat and tried to relax. As I took another deep breath and reminded myself to remain calm, I surveyed the terrain again. No car tracks aside from mine or the Morrisons. No evidence of a struggle. And no sign of any other life out here. But that didn't mean nothing else was out here besides me. As if to answer me, a guttural roar burst out from the woods to my right and I practically shot out of my seat. It was the ugliest sound I've ever heard and there was no way a human was capable of making that noise. It was the kind of sound that seems to be a living, breathing, physical entity like thunder. Without waiting another moment, I started the engine, floored the gas pedal, and the jeep roared to life as I drove out of there as fast as I could. As I pulled away, I swear that I could see the trees where the roar came from tremble slightly. It wasn't until I had been driving for about ten minutes that I noticed some heavy breathing that sounded pained. When I realized it was mine, I tried to take a deep breath and calm down. Once I had done the former and was attempting the latter, I picked up my radio with a clammy hand and called in what I found and heard. I was surprised, as my voice was far calmer than I felt. On the other line, my colleague sounded surprised but not skeptical. Maybe it was sincere. Or maybe when I had backup and we all headed back there together... We might find nothing, 
and that might just declare me paranoid. I didn't really care either way. I would much rather be called paranoid than a crime statistic. I rolled along at a good pace until I rounded a corner and a figure standing in the middle of the road made me slam on the brakes. In the harsh light from the vehicle's headlights, I could see the figure was slight, wearing badly tattered clothes, and was pretty beat up. But when the figure took a step forward, I couldn't believe it. It was my brother-in-law, Jerry. Jerry! I rolled down my window in shock. What the heck is going on? Bobby, we gotta go. Get in. I said before he ran unsteadily towards the passenger seat. The minute that he sat down, I hit the gas and we roared out of there. He panted for a good 30 seconds before his breathing evened out. What happened, Jerry? I asked him after he had a chance to rest. There's something out there, Bobby. Some kind of creature, a monster, like something out of a TV show. And there's this group of people that know about it and treat it like it's real important. They think it's so important that they even kidnap people and offer it to the monster to eat. That's what happened to me. What kind of monster is it? It was the only thing that I could think of to ask. I don't know. How did you get away? You remember that knife you got me for Christmas last year? The one that you can store anywhere. That's right. I had it in my shoe at the time they grabbed me. Once I had a chance, I put it to good use. And here you are, saving my neck again. I'll never be able to repay you. His voice broke as he spoke. I always liked you, Jerry. Not like Tyler, Marianne's last boyfriend. The sentence was barely out of my mouth when the car went around a bend, and I had to slam on the brakes again. But this time, the sight was far more chilling. As the road was filled with people wearing identical monochromatic black plastic masks, the kind that you get in bulk at a party store. They also wore plain black hooded sweatshirts and the hoods were pulled up. No one moved an inch as I stopped. They all just stood there facing me, all 25 of them. And then almost on command, they all started walking at once towards the vehicle. That was the only cue that I needed to start the car and run right through them. Or, that was my plan before, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a blur of color and two of the masked people went flying and slammed into trees. When they landed, both of them were sporting deep scratches that were bleeding. This made the others stop immediately before they started to flee in opposite directions. But that wasn't enough, because more of them fell prey to whatever was out there, which I couldn't see. Either way, I hit the gas harder than I ever had in my life, and it wasn't long before the screaming and wailing was a faint background noise. What's the matter? Jerry gleefully called out from the cracked window. I can't handle what you tried to do to me. The two of us didn't say a word to each other until we had reached the park ranger station. Gathered around the front were a few of my colleagues. But two of the people were dressed casually and matched the descriptions of the Morrison whose campsite I was sent to check out. My face must have shown my surprise because Mrs. Morrison walked over to me and shook my hand. Libby Morrison, paranormal investigator. My husband and I were investigating the rumors of strange occurrences out here, and we left the campsite abandoned in order to try to record what happened. 
Well, congrats, you sure found something. Was all I said before I briefly explained what happened and left it to the professionals. Altogether, the bodies of ten masked people were pulled from the park. The rest were rounded up by law enforcement and charged with various things. And while that was going on, I handed in my resignation while Jerry went home with my sister. I eventually got another job related to the outdoors, but this time it was a job related to outdoor retail. I've met Bigfoot and he's not at all what you think he is. Written by Ethan Cord. I'm knelt before a fire on a crisp September night, with red all over my hands and a recurved bow slung over my shoulders. My offering lying at my feet as I echo out the special word at the top of my lungs. The intensity and volume of something very large and powerful blowing through the dense forest suddenly begins and grows closer and louder. Soon the crashing breaks into silence as I come eye to eye with it. I know what I have to do now. I need to fast forward you to a time in my life when I met and married Laura. Laura and I had known each other all throughout my college career. We hung out with mostly the same friends and usually at the same get-togethers. I say get-together because neither of us were much into the partying scene, so we spent our times respectively around even-keeled people who were more academic, you might say. Nothing too crazy happened around us. It wasn't until after college when I ran into Laura again at a Safeway in Oregon that something had kindled up between us. She was in town to oversee these surveys of a local timber company, and it just happened to decide that fateful evening to take a chance on grocery store sushi to take back to her hotel room. I, on the other hand, was purchasing needle thread, citric acid, amongst a lot of other peculiar items for my projects at the cabin. Fortunately, Laura didn't notice these items in my cart, and we commenced with the usual how-have-you-been conversation. Both of us, though, seemed locked on each other, and hung on others' every word. Like I said, we had essentially been geeks in college, so I never took notice of Laura in a physical way, and give her the usual Coke bottle glasses and the oversized Pokemon sweaters. Likewise, she would have had no reason to take notice of me either. I was 35 pounds overweight then, and usually wearing whatever I had for lunch in my sweats and worn-out Metallica shirts. To say that she had changed would be an understatement. She was wearing a very plain button-up blouse with blue jeans, but she had gotten rid of the big glasses for contacts, and her past, frazzled red hair was parted away finely so I could see her beautiful green eyes. I was entranced. Luckily, I myself had dropped the weight, had been involuntarily working out, given the profession that I was now in, and I had learned to eat like an adult and wear adult clothes. We ended up having a light coffee downtown that night. It seemed like there wasn't a thing she could say that I wasn't completely interested in and hearing about, and she seemed even the interested in my life, at least what I told her. When I walked her to her hotel room that night, Neither of us expected anything physical, so 
There was a real sincere comfort between us as we exchanged numbers. I could ramble on and on about my life with Laura, but suffice to say, the rest was history. A short eight months later, we found ourselves surrounded by friends and family on a beach off the East Coast, professing our undying vows to each other. Mildly enough though, my new bride, a Western Rockies native, had never seen the southern part of the United States and insisted on a backpacking trip into the Appalachian Mountains. This is where our story really begins. We had elected to embark on a 20-mile hike that week. The idea was that it would provide exercise but also the ability to take our time being with each other. The first four miles flew by that afternoon, and as we came to a beautiful meadow with a bubbling stream running through it, we couldn't imagine a more picturesque place to camp. So, we set up camp, cooked our freeze-dried meals, and headed to the tent early that night. At about 2am, I could have sworn that I had heard voices on the hillside above us, but I was too tired to check it out before dozing off again. At 3.37 though, I knew that I was hearing something, so I gingerly snuck out of our sleeping bag, quietly unzipped a slot in the tent door, and took a peek towards where our campfire had been. I thought that I could make out the outline of three medium-built people, but what gave it away was the glow of a cigarette butt that was hanging out of one of their mouths. I found myself unsure of what to be prepared for. I had left my hunting gear at home for this trip, so all that remained for our protection was a can of bear spray and a multi-two plier that featured a dinky knife blade. Honey, what's wrong? Laura had startled me with once I regained my composure, I took one last view out of the door to witness the figures in the dark scrambling away. Nothing, I said. It may be a bear, but it's gone now. I didn't want to worry her over something I myself wasn't so sure about, so I snuggled back into our bag with her and fell asleep. The next morning, I took notice of two cigarette butts around our campfire. Something felt awry. But I was in my honeymoon after all, so I decided carrying on a few more miles down the trail would alleviate the worry. Late that afternoon, we had lingered our way into, like, Marker 7, when we had walked up on a very old and small-statured white-haired gentleman that was hunkered over off the side of the trail with a look of defeat worn on his face. He seemed quite out of place in a modern world with clothing that was stained, tattered and ripped everywhere as though he had just finished working a coal mine in the 1800s. He was bent over in a semi-permanent way, but when he lifted his head towards us, his piercing blue eyes locked onto us in an almost hypnotizing way. Laura spoke up and asked if he needed help. He stated that he was in dire need of water, and that he had run out of energy and breath trying to get back to his cabin, two miles up the draw that we were passing. Immediately, Laura surrendered her aluminum water bottle, and I came alongside him, hooked his arm over my shoulder and gently eased him up the draw. A couple of hours later, we found ourselves standing before the most moss-covered ramshackle of a cabin that I had ever laid my eyes upon. Laura and I both looked concerned at each other as the man stepped away from my support as though he had never needed it and bounced up the front steps of the cabin's little squeaky porridge. 
Thank you too kindly for escorting me home and taking care of an old man. I should be okay from here. He then gave Laura's bottle back to her and with a wink said, If you two ever need anything, just holler my name and I'll come and run in. My name's Atlow. I think he could read our minds as we pondered the logic in leaving an old man deep in the woods in such awful looking living conditions. So he gently waved us away while turning his back to us and walking through his front door. Are you sure we can't help you with anything else? I half shouted. He poked his head out the door and replied, Oh, trust me, I'll get by just fine. From time to time I make friends with fine folks like yourselves and they bring me by some offering of whitetail venison in the fall. One or two deer always meets my needs the way that I am right now. And then he winked again like old men do and popped his head back inside the old shack as he slammed the half-rotted out wooden door. As we made our way back to the main trail, we asked ourselves both the logistics of an old man living on a national forest and what kind of name Atlow was. We soon made it to Marker 8 and settled into a quaint little opening on an overlooking hillside of the trail. We once again headed to bed before dark. Around 4am the following morning, I took a step outside to relieve myself when I noticed three fresh cigarette butts a mere 20 feet from our tent. At 6am, I rustled Laura up and insisted that we start our hike early. She seemed confused but agreeable so we left it at that. We ended up trekking 7 miles up the trail that day. Laura asked why we needed to push so hard and I made a story up about having a surprise stop for her on our way back home to Oregon. Laura loved surprises, so she just gave me a glowing smile and we headed off to bed early once again. This time because we were actually exhausted and needed the rest. I felt secure that the distance that we had covered that day would clear us of the strangers. But at 1.30, we both started awake to the sound of an eerie whistling in the tree line, 30 yards west of us, and it began emanating from all around. I knew that Laura needed to know what had been happening, so I whispered the whole gambit to her, and she in turn verbally berated me and smacked my shoulder as I grabbed for my little multi-tool knife. Before I could even get the knife open, the tent door was ripped apart, and four large and very rank-smelling men rushed us. They stood there staring and hunkered over us. <laughs> They'll do just fine. The largest of them squeaked out with a low, hoarse voice. I quickly unfolded the blade and jabbed him in the female artery along his head. He let out a howl and staggered back, taking my knife with him. It was then that I knew we were in real trouble and I was out of ideas. Before I could think any more on it, I felt a hard glance to my right temple and it was lights out. What must have been just five or so minutes later, I came to with my hand and mouth tied up, kneeling and looking across our rekindled fire as two of the men began poking and prodding at Laura as they held her down together. To say that I had never felt so powerless and fearful in my life would be an understatement. I screamed with all my might through the dirtied cloth crammed in my mouth and attempted to break free and ram myself into the man, watching guard over me but to no avail. When I fell sideways in the dirt, I noticed that my blade had done its work on the larger man as he lay there, 
unconscious and bleeding out a few steps from our tent. Once I had heard the fabric of Laura's t-shirts begin to rip apart, I knew what this had all been about. My heart and hers were about to be shattered for eternity. She then locked eyes with me, screaming my name despite both of us truly knowing how useless I was in that moment. But then she did something quite unexpected. Somehow, within the recess of her mind, fired up a memory and out of one more act of desperation, as the horrid man began clawing at her jeans, she yelled, Atlaw! The men all stopped and stared at each other. What does that even mean, woman? They began to heckle us both about it. But then we heard the loud crash through the forest. Before any of us could register the noise any further, a bulldozer-like movement erupted through the clearing, and what appeared before us standing at neatly eight feet tall, defined all logic. It was definitely what you might consider the rough image of Bigfoot would be, overlong arms that hung nearly to his feet, except that eight-inch claws jutted out from his long-haired fingers instead of fingernails. He was obviously hairy all over with a sheen, silver-like hair, and of course, he had what appeared to be size 35 human-like hairy feet. But what would throw your whole perception of his build was that his head resembled more of that of a grizzly bear with a shorter but deeply scarred snout. Scars that alluded to untold battles with beings even larger than himself. Still though, emanating through that terrific exterior were those piercing blue eyes that seemed to project a sense of ancient experience, kindness, and blind rage all at once. What the? Was all one of the men could mutter before the thing leaped down on him, and in one foul motion, ripped the man apart with jagged teeth. The other men immediately began to take off in two separate directions, but the beast leapt from the first man onto another forty feet away, and ripped the man open with both hands and began to feast on him. I thought for a moment that the final guy would make it out when he broke into the tree line, but our savior stopped snacking and seemed to reluctantly acknowledge that he had more work to do, and dashed with jaguar-like speeds into the woods. The screaming that we heard echo from there was the stuff of nightmares. Laura quickly ran over to me and untied my bindings. We eyed the main trail below us in unison, and began to stand up to make our escape. Stepping right out in front of us, though, was a frail old atoll. Red all over his face and tans while licking his lips. It's all okay now, kids, he quipped. What was? I started to stammer before Atlow interrupted me. Some things are better left a little mysterious, eh? He then took a survey around camp before adding, You kids pack your camp up and head on a little ways down the trail. I'll clean this mess up myself. He gave us another one of those charming winks like jolly old men do, and we both nodded our heads in obedience. After we had packed our tent and gear up, while I and Atlal, as he just stood a few feet away, staring up into the stars, I voiced out a soft, Thank you, sir. He turned slowly to me and simply replied, You two are good folks, and I'll do anything for good folks. You ever find yourself in my part of the wilderness again? You just holler and I'll be there. Run along now. 
He then turned his back again to us and looked up at the stars while stretching his shoulders as though he had just awoken from some deep slumber. Laura and I didn't set camp anywhere else that night, obviously. Instead, we hiked the remaining five miles of our trip in the dark to the rental car staged in a trail parking lot that night and drove nearly 200 miles before us stopping at a hotel in another state to crash. In the following months, Laura and I both worked through feelings of defeat and shame over what nearly happened to her that night, but we learned to work through it together, and it bonded us closer than ever. It wasn't until the following August that Laura shook me awake in the middle of the night, because she had just remembered. Allo kind of insinuated an offering, didn't he? I nodded to her and turned back to go back to sleep. I knew what I needed to do once hunting season came. And that's how I found myself in September, kneeling over a young buck whitetail and yelling for Atlow's name in the middle of the night. Once he had broke the tree line and appeared before me as the Yeti Bean, I had to stifle the inadvertent terror that I'm sure still showed clearly in my eyes. I question whether I had even blinked before the next thing I knew. There stood that small stature of a frail old man. Thank you kindly for remembering my request, young man, he said. There will be more where this came from, I assure you, I replied. And then he winked at me and turned away to look up at the stars, signifying that it was my time to leave. I got a job in a coffee shop. The training video I watched did something to me. Written by Trash Tia. My head hurts. I don't even know why I'm here. Why I'm writing this. I should be somewhere else. I should be doing something. But I keep thinking... I keep thinking that I should post here. Maybe that would be a good idea. I've always wanted to be a barista. Sure, it's never been an avid dream of mine. Like the fantasies that we have as kids. Well, I don't know. Maybe someone out there dreams to serve coffee for the rest of their life. For me, it wasn't really a fantasy. Like being a ballerina or an astronaut. Instead, like many other college students working themselves to make a decent wage, I needed cash. I needed cash and I needed it bad. I have always marveled baristas though. I've ordered a coffee at 8am before class and watched a sleep deprived teenager turn into some kind of artist with whipped cream, transforming my macchiato into their canvas, a piece of art worthy for an award. Seriously. What they do has to be magic. At least that's what I thought. I always wondered how they do it. How they made these drinks without having a mental breakdown. It's the kind of thing I've always known that I would suck at. But I wanted to try. And so I did some research. And by that I mean I went on YouTube and watched barista vlogs. Yeah, they exist. I was surprised too. There are hundreds of channels dedicated to half-hour videos where you get to watch them make these weird and wacky drinks. It's kind of therapeutic to watch. 
When I wasn't in class or sleeping, I was watching these videos to get a basic idea. I knew I couldn't just go in without experience. They would laugh at me. I spent maybe a few weeks researching and writing down all the different kinds of coffee, milkshakes, and smoothies. There were so many combinations, and the pace that it was done at it made my brain hurt. You might be sitting there thinking making coffee is easy, and well it is. When you can memorize any order and know the combinations by heart. After weeks of trying and failing and giving up and trying again, I handed in my resume to my local Starbrooks, as well as pretty much every store in walking vicinity. Starbrooks had been my go-to coffee shop all the way through my freshman and junior years of college. I had watched baristas come and go. I could even name them. Becca, who couldn't use the coffee machine, and Jake, who helped her out. Luca, who always gave me extra whipped cream. I wanted to be a part of them. They looked like a family behind the counter, laughing and chatting while making coffees and serving customers. I know it's not always like that. We're all human. Life can be tough and it can get in the way. Sometimes they looked tired and their smiles were lesser than shadows under their eyes like they hadn't slept, like they had been up all night. Luca wasn't always smiling. Becca wasn't always laughing. They were college kids and I expected them to have at least some humanity, even if customer service demanded they shut it. But it was the kind of job that I wanted. I wasn't expecting a reply. It's not out of the ordinary when I don't get replies. Most jobs ignore me. I've applied for the local music store multiple times, and according to my online application, it's still pending. It's been pending for like two years now, so I wasn't hopeful. It was more likely that independent coffee shops would take me on. Still, I waited for several weeks, with the application at the back of my mind. I still watched the barista vlogs because it was something relaxing to sit back to after class, and when I was stressing over finals. I got a call maybe a week ago in the middle of class. Normally it's my mom, so I have to mute it. I didn't recognize the number, but I found myself excusing myself from the lecture. The woman on the other end of the line had a voice like nails on a chalkboard. She seemed way too happy about calling me. Like she had been waiting all day. It was jarring. Hello there. Am I correct in saying that I'm speaking to Miss Satori? Yeah, I said groggily, suddenly forgetting how to speak English, as well as basic etiquette on a business call. I had found myself falling asleep in the middle of my lecture. I tend to do that a lot. Sure, my lectures are interesting, but the room is cozy. The ambience of students typing, and my professor's smooth voice like honey trickling in my ears. I shook my head of mind fog and pasted on a smile that I knew she couldn't see. Um, yes, speaking. Well, hello, Miss Satori. I apologize for the delay in getting back to you. My name is Anna. I'm the assistant manager at Starbucks. We love your application and we would think you would be a great addition to our team. Would you be able to attend an interview at around 5pm? She laughed lightly. 
Again, I apologize to getting back to you so late. We've had a lot of applicants to get through, and you're certainly caught my eye. You're a student, right? I have to say, Miss Satori, with your current qualifications I have in front of me, we think you would be perfect. Qualifications? I had to mentally go over my resume. I left school with a 3.9 GPA, and I had worked at my local Sephora in my hometown before college. I opened my mouth to correct her, but hey, I wasn't going to turn away an opportunity to work as a barista. Yes, I said again. Anna's words were going in one ear and out the other. All I was able to say was yes and nod. My cheeks felt like they were going to burn off. She was speaking so fast that I could barely understand what she was saying. I had to talk over her. Um, yes, I'm currently in my senior year. I have class four times a week. I wasn't sure what I was saying and why I was saying it. The words were streaming out of me before I could stop myself. I know that my roommate lied about her grades to get a job in social media marketing. They wanted straight A's and she didn't even pass math. Still though, they never checked. Mom always told me employers never do. Anna, however, didn't seem to care. It sounded like she was reaching for anything that I was apparently good at. Instead of just admitting that I was the ideal candidate because I was a broke college student with barely any social life and free nights. And they really were exploiting kids, huh? Well, we can work around that. Anna seemed to say everything with expletive. Is five okay? Today? Yes, today would be preferable. We're quite around five, so that is when we conduct our interviews. Oh, right. I felt stupid. Yeah, five is fine. I paused, my heart jackhammering in my chest. Do I need any experience? Anna laughed. Well, what do you think training is for, Miss Satori? Experience is, of course, preferred like in every job. However, we put our employees through an induction course where they learn all they need to know. I can assure you, no first-hand experience is required. She let out a sigh. I have to say this a lot. You have no idea. Oh, I perked up a little. I'll be there after classes end. And do I need to bring anything? Anna chuckled. Your brain is all we need, she said. And some common sense, of course. But no, we don't require extensive paperwork. However, we would appreciate a physical copy of your resume and your ID. I can bring them, that's no problem, I said. I felt like jumping up and down. A job. An actual paid job as a barista. And I would be fully trained. The store was maybe a ten minute walk away from my apartment. It was perfect. Great, well, I'll see you there, Anna said. And I couldn't keep the grin off my face. She ended the call before I could respond, but I didn't care. All the way through class, I couldn't stop thinking about the interview. A million questions were buzzing around my brain. Would the interview be with Anna or someone else? What if I got choked up and messed up? Anna had explicitly said that I didn't need experience, but then I was overthinking everything she had said. It was polite not to ask for it, right? So, what if they did need it and Anna expected me to know that? 
What if she wanted me to make a double espresso latte with 10 types of sauce and whipped cream right in front of her? And by the end of class, I was sweating and my gut was twisting with nausea. I kept picking up my phone and then dropping it into my lap over and over again. I wanted to ring Anna and tell her that I had made a mistake, but that was just anxiety taking hold. To soothe my mind, I grabbed a coffee from the campus store and took slow steps. A triple venti, half-sweet, non-fat, caramel macchiato was my go-to when I was stressed. But that day, it was too sweet. Too sickly. I couldn't enjoy it without worrying about how it was made. On the way out of my last class of the day, I checked my phone. 4.45. I had 15 minutes to go to the bathroom and make myself at least look presentable, and then head off to the interview. By make myself look presentable, I mean comb through my hair with my fingers and put it in a high pony, and wash my face. I wasn't an avid believer in astrology, but I was convinced these stars were practically screaming that I was going to tank my interview. When I walked through the door, I was hit with the familiar aroma of crushed coffee beans and brownies. It was the kind of smell that I was used to, and I immediately relaxed. Anna greeted me at the counter. She was right. The store was pretty empty. I could only glimpse dead-eyed college kids and businessmen typing on MacBooks. There were four interviewees. And the other three looked to be my age and seemed nice enough. Two guys and a girl. The girl had pretty hair, I remember thinking. It fell in blonde waves in front of her face. She was way too pretty to be a barista. The guys were like no other guys I'd ever met before. I only knew the frat kind that ended up in my roommate's bed every morning. These guys, though, were different. Like they had just stepped out of a Dungeons and Dragons convention. One of them had red hair sprouting from a baseball cap and had a strong British accent. The other didn't say a word and hid under a bright yellow hoodie which hung off a slimmer frame. Welcome. Anna was maybe my mom's age with dark hair pulled into a ponytail and a permanent smile that seemed to be glued to her face. She was exactly the kind of person I had pictured on the phone call. You're all here for the barista position. Anna pointed at us individually, counting us. Ah, y'all made it. That's a relief. None of us spoke. I guess we had made a silent mutual agreement to only communicate through nods and hums, though Anna didn't seem to mind. Great. Why don't you follow me to the back and we can get started? Um, excuse me. The blonde raised her hand like she was in class. Are the interviews separate? Yeah. The British guy nodded, playing with a loose curl of his hair. Is this a group thing, or... Anna shook her head. Oh, I thought it was obvious from what I had told each of you on the phone. You all have the job. There is no interview process. I just need you guys to take a little test. And then we'll be watching a training video as part of your induction. She folded her arms. Is that okay with you four? It won't take long. The guy with the hoodie lifted his head. Confusion crinkling his expression. Wait, so we're all hired? He said something else, the latter of his words enveloped by the screeching sound of beans being grouted in the blender. I tried not to cover my ears, but that stuff was loud. 
It felt like I was being poked directly in my skull. Anna was still talking, though I had to step closer to hear her to fully understand what she was saying. Yes, now if you follow me, we're going to go to some place quieter. She eyed the blender and the guy behind it. He looked several years older than the four of us, maybe his late 20s. He seemed unfazed by the noise, dancing with his torso to some pop song on the radio. Rich, Anna's voice broke through the machine's seemingly endless wail. Can you turn that off? The man or Ridge seemed to snap out of it and nodded, switching off the blender. I caught his eye for a moment and he held it. I'm not sure why. It was awkward so I looked away but I still felt his eyes on me. He didn't speak, only shutting off the blender and turning to serve a customer. Well thank you. Anna rolled her eyes. Excuse Rich, he's a lovely guy, not the smartest however. She gestured behind the counter and we followed her through a pair of swinging doors. We were led into a narrow corridor with stained and cracked linoleum and bruised yellow walls. Not exactly the most hygienic place. Anna took us into the first room, and it looked to be her office. There were already four chairs positioned behind a messy desk full of paper and old Starbucks cups. I noticed a binder hanging off the edge. There was something printed on the front that looked familiar. I had seen it before. It was a logo of some sort, but I couldn't remember where I had seen it. Before I could look further, Anna placed a stray cup over it. She took a seat behind an expensive-looking laptop which was idle. If you'd like to sit down, I'll be with you in a moment. Anna started typing on her computer, grabbing paperwork and sorting them into a pile next to her. I grabbed a seat and watched her. I figured the mess of paperwork were our resumes. The four of us sat in comfortable silence for a moment while Anna typed vigorously on her laptop. When my palms were starting to go sweaty in my lap, she finally lifted her head. Alright, so there's something I would like you guys to fill out first. It's just a small test so I can get to know you a little more. She stood up and grabbed a handful of paper before depositing a sheet to each of us, and then she gave us a pen. The blonde looked up. So we just fill these in. Yep, and oh, just a second. Anna disappeared out the door for a moment, and the four of us exchanged looks. The others looked like they were going to laugh. It seemed absurd that we were being tested like we were back at school. I was so used to using a laptop and typing that I struggled to remember if I was right or left-handed. Anna came back in a rush, her cheeks pink. She was holding four cups of coffee, depositing them in front of us. When I picked mine up, it was a simple black coffee. Anna told us that we had ten minutes to complete the test before wandering out of the room. Outside, I noticed that it had started to get dark. The sky was awash with pretty oranges and yellows. I took a sip from the cup and it burnt my tongue, but it tasted good. It was the type of coffee that I worshipped when I stayed up all night to write an essay. There was a tang to it and I wondered what it was. Maybe syrup or added espresso. Pushing most of these stray thoughts to the back of my mind, I focused on the first question. The scratching sounds of pen and paper filled the room and I hurried to follow behind the other three. 
The font was weird, I had noticed. I don't think I recognized it. It reminded me of a Dr. Scrawl. Question 1. What is your name? Simple enough, I thought. I wrote Maki Satori. My handwriting wasn't the best, but I figured that didn't matter. Question 2. What is your age? Reading the text was hurting my eyes. Squinting, I scribbled a 22. Question 3 confused me. It was a math question. Not an easy one either. I wasn't great at math, so I was automatically struggling. With the pressure of trying to figure out some complicated problem combined with the text, my head was starting to hurt. After a while of trying to count on my fingers, failing to count in my head, and risking a glance at the blonde paper, I wrote my best guess, which I knew was wrong. I knew it was wrong because it was a random number. Come on, I thought. It's not like the math problem mattered. Exhaling out of breath, I moved on to the next question. Question 4. Read this paragraph very carefully. Do you suffer from sleep deprivation? 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 A. Yes. B. No. My eyes felt heavy. A dull fog settling over my mind. It kept going halfway down the page. I couldn't stop reading it, like the words were leading my eyes further down. No, I didn't, I thought. But the more I read, the more I started to wonder if I did. I did stay up most nights because of my assignments. I circled yes. Question 5. Are you alone right now? Yes or no? My pen started to shake in my hands. I knew that I wasn't, but it was clear the test was trying to mess with my head. It wanted out-of-the-box answers. After hesitating, I circled a yes. Question 6. Are you sure? Yes or no? When I glanced up, my stomach twisted. I could see the girl's head bobbing up and down and one of the guys chewing his pen. But I still felt like what I was seeing was wrong. Slowly, I scribbled out my first answer and circled no. Question 7. There are five of you in this room right now. Who out of the following does not exist? I dropped my pen but something came over me. A sensation taking over my hands. I grabbed it quickly. My gaze skimming over the multiple choice answers. I wanted to leave. To throw my paper down and get the heck out of there. But something came over me. My hold on the pen tightening. I couldn't let go of it. A. Ben. B. Sam. C. Luna. D. Jack. E. Me. I don't exist. When I risked to look up, I was seeing three faces. I knew there were three faces. I had learned their names before we had all walked in. I had shared a cigarette with Sam in the rain. I had laughed at Luna's anecdote about her overprotective mother and smiled at Ben when he offered a shy wave. So why couldn't I remember? I remember walking in the door. I remember Anna's bright smile. Rich behind the coffee machine, shooting me a scowl. 
so why couldn't I remember them? The test wanted an answer, so I hesitantly circled Jack. Question 8. Are you enjoying this test? A. Yes. B. Yes. C. Yes. Swallowing something ranted crawling to my throat, I circled yes. The others weren't reacting to the test, and I couldn't help wonder why. It was some kind of trick, surely, but none of them were speaking. When I glanced up, they were embroiled in their own papers. My head was starting to pound, the taste of coffee still lingering on my tongue, making me nauseous. Outside, it was pitch black. When I looked around for a clock, there was none. Though I could have sworn there had been one above Anna's desk. I had seen it because I remember being surprised that it was almost a quarter to seven. I had arrived at five. My head started to spin. Had we really spent an hour greeting Anna? How had I lost a whole hour and not even realized it? And why was I only noticing this now? Blinking rapidly, I moved on to the next question. Question 9. How long did it take you to realize Jack does not exist? A. You have always known. B. You only just realized. I circled B. The next question stood out amongst all the rest. It was in block capitals. Question 10. Find the red square. There were no answers, no multiple choice options. After a disorienting second of staring at my paper like an idiot, I scanned the page and then turned it over, searching for any red squares. There weren't any. I was flipping my paper over, squinting, trying to see if there were any hidden in the text, or they could only be seen when you really concentrated, when Anna breezed back through the door. Alright, pens down, she ordered. I didn't even get to recheck my answers before she was tearing the paper from my hands. Again, I expected the others to say something, like the kind of thing that was burning in the back of my mouth. What the heck? I wanted to say. I wanted to stand up and walk out of there. But the way that Anna positioned herself in front of us made me realize that she wasn't finished. I felt for my phone to get a proper look at the time, but it wasn't in my pocket. I started to inwardly panic, but then I remembered... Oh yeah, that fog was back encasing my mind in cotton candy. I had left it in my bag which was in the storage room. How could I forget? I was so, so clumsy sometimes. How did you find the test? Anna asked, her eyes piercing each of us. The blonde, Luna, stood up with a shaky smile. And do you mind if I get going? Her voice was panicked. I don't think this is the job for me. Anna nodded, still with that bright smile. Of course, Luna. After the training video. But I don't want the job, she whispered. Could I please go? Yes, after the training video, now follow me, Anna said, her tone growing stern. I waited for Luna to give up and walk out, but she didn't. She nodded slowly, her cheeks paling. It was almost like the four of us were trapped under a spell. We couldn't move. We couldn't question authority. When alarm bells started ringing in our heads, they were quickly silenced. 
I stood up too, my body tipped to the left and then to the right. The clock was back. 11.35. The time struck me as Ron. No, it couldn't be 11. We had only been in the office for 20 minutes. I opened my mouth to say this, but Anna was already ushering us to the door and back down the hallway. But we weren't going back to the storefront. We were going deeper. The corridor felt like it was going on forever. And time, time seemed to slow down. I could see an ending to the corridor, but the closer that I got to it, it got further away like it was playing with me. When I was staring hard at Anna's back, I could still see the words, Do you suffer from sleep deprivation? Still flickering at the back of my eyes. When I shook my head, I glimpsed something small. Something white, bouncing along with the others. A tiny white rabbit. I shook my head again, but no, I wasn't seeing things. The tiny rabbit turned to look directly at me with beady eyes and lifted a small white paw. It was a gesturing for me to keep going, bouncing between the boy's legs. And so I did. I kept going until the corridor ended on a simple wooden door. When Anna told us to go inside, I stopped at the threshold. Just looking at the room sent slithers of panic down my spine. But something pushed me forward, despite my body refusing to follow. The room reminded me of an old classroom. The walls were starched white and there were four desks. And that was it. Four walls and four desks. The others were hesitant walking in and I followed, keeping an eye on the door. The rabbit had disappeared. Anna stood at the front, still smiling like she knew something that we didn't. Sit down, please. She nodded at the desks. Any desk will do. Is this another test? Luna acted like the desk was teeming with spiders when she took an uncertain seat. Anna shook her head. No, this is the last stage of your induction. When I slumped down at a desk, the boys followed in suit. The door opened, and I recognized the guy who had been grinding the coffee beans, Rich. He wielded an ancient-looking TV set aside in the room, positioning it in front of us. I felt like I was back at school. Back in middle school when the teacher would let us watch Bill Nye the Science Guy. I had always found the introduction kind of hypnotizing. The room suddenly went black, and the TV flickered onto a dark blue screen. Rich left and Anna leaned against the door with her arms folded across her chest. Again, I wanted to speak. I think we all did. But the words wouldn't form coherently in my mind. The television flickered again, like an old VCR, before text appeared in bright white. Silver screen home video system. Pro J Blue. Introductory training. Test 1 intro. Test 2 mirror. Test 3 lullaby. I waited for something to happen. For a moment and there was nothing. Before the top option blinked like it was being selected. After a second, the screen erupted into static before a video started. It reminded me of those old-style VCRs that my parents still had at home. I could tell that it was damaged or it had been used too many times because it kept skipping, colors mixing into one confusing hue. I had seen some training videos for McDonald's on YouTube, and it was similar to that. 
music started. It was upbeat and playful. A woman popped up out of nowhere with a wide smile. She looked to be in the background of a Starbucks. There were people in the background making coffee on loud laughter and chatting. The presenter looked directly into the camera. You've just landed your dream job with us, she said loudly, never losing that smile. So, what's next? Well, we have to train you up, of course. The screen flashed to three teenagers in 70s wear. The woman's voice continued while the camera panned on each one. We're going to show you the do's. It had cut to the woman nodding with a smile. And don'ts. Her grin twisted into a frown. Of working at your favorite coffee chain. Now, without further ado, let's get started. Sarah's going to show you guys everything you need to know. The screen cut to a kid washing their hands vigorously, and Comic Sans text popped up above her head. Well, let's talk about hygiene, the presenter said. Now, you're going to wash your hands three times, okay? And then put on your apron, just like Sarah. The camera panned at the girl doing exactly what the presenter was saying. I watched Sarah be led through several steps which included checking stock, making sure surfaces were clean, before she finally put a plastic cup on the counter. The woman appeared again, this time slightly off screen, and the screen collapsed into static. The video was still going on and I could hear the presenter's voice, but there was something overlaying the garbled static. At first, I thought I was seeing things before the screen turned to bright white. It was so bright, I wanted to look away. I wanted to cry out, but I couldn't. There was text in front of me. Those same words on my test in block capitals practically screaming at me. Find the red squares. But there weren't any. I couldn't find any. The video jumped back into frame. Sarah was making a mocha and the presenter was standing behind her. While I was watching the demonstration, that same message played over and over again in my mind. Find the red squares. I was looking for them, forcing my way through the footage, through the static. I was half aware of Anna in front of me. I felt her breath on my cheeks. I felt her cold hands forcing my wrist to the armrest and pinning them down with something. Velcro? I couldn't cry out. My eyes were glued to the screen. When I tried to shut them, Anna's ice-cold fingers were prying them open. Something replaced her fingers. Tape. Tiny pieces of tape held my eyelids open. I managed to move my lips, but all they could manage was a soft moan. I had no choice. I had to watch. I had to find the squares. The screen flicked from red to orange and then the Starbrooks presenter was back making something. A mocha, I thought. Yes, a mocha. Her eyes flicked to the camera. Okay, so what we're going to do to make the perfect mocha is... She started to explain. And I found myself mouthing her words. They came so easy to me. Pouring from my lips, but with no sound. I noticed something at the corner of my eye. Something was pulsing at the top of the screen. A red square. When my eyes found it, the square moved to the middle. Then it was at the bottom left-hand corner. I followed it eagerly. The faster it was, my eye movements tracked it perfectly. 
When the presenter had finished the drink and was holding it up in the air, I was tracking 12 different squares flashing from corner to corner, left to right. Okay then, test one. The presenter's voice dulled on my mind. It sounded less enthusiastic and over the top. No, it was a voice telling me what to do. It was giving me... It was giving me an order. Come on guys, I just showed you. The woman was laughing, her grin growing bigger and bigger. Step one, I found myself saying. The others echoing. Wash your hands. Very good. The woman on screen smiled like she could hear us. Man, what is step two? The red squares were back, but they were bigger, growing bigger and bigger. Step two, we said. We grind the beans in the blender. That's right, the woman said. And what if your establishment does not have a blender? We'll use a rolling pin, we said back. And the woman nodded. You're doing so well, guys. Why don't you give yourself a pat on the back? I strained to move my hands to do it, but I couldn't move. The woman's smile grew. There you go. Now, step three. Come on, say it with me. And remember, service with a smile. I don't want to see any frowns. The red squares were glowing brighter. I felt my lips widening into a grin that hurt my jaw. The presenter's image wavered, and she looked almost 3D, like she was coming out of the TV. Step 3. Our voices fell in sync with hers and I couldn't control myself. I couldn't control my body. I couldn't control my smile that had quickly become a demented grin. We start whipping the cream and clearing the surfaces of any unused ingredients. The red squares were flashing in every corner now. I caught each one, and every question the woman asked me, I answered. When the screen flashed to another bright red screen with the words, please stand by, I felt my left eye strain. Whatever was holding it open was struggling, and then something snapped. The tape or whatever it was came loose. My left eye was free, and once it was, that something was screaming, piercing my ear. I felt it rooted inside of me as something alive, something crawling directly inside my skull. With my eyes free, I blinked, and then I blinked again. The training video seemed to snap out of existence, replaced by a white screen. The following footage is top secret. Unauthorized viewing of the following is punishable by 06356GM6. See protocol. If a subject resists, please refer to protocol H912. Neutralization. Please stand by. But the others were still talking, I realized. I could hear them reciting another coffee recipe in a symphony drone. Whatever the training video was, it wasn't playing for Anna. Only for us, only for me when my eyes were completely open. It didn't take Anna long to notice. The dull fog that had been choking my brain for hours was starting to lift. All those thoughts that had been forced back were drifting back into the forefront of my mind. I managed to tear one wrist free, but Anna was in front of me before I could try anything else. I remember crying out. I remember begging her, but she didn't listen. Her smile was gone. I didn't see a woman in charge of a coffee chain. 
I saw someone else. Someone a lot higher up. When my eyes were held open once again, my panicked gaze found the screen, which once again flickered back to the training video. The presenter and Sarah were back in front of the camera, like they were waiting for me. The presenter was shaking her head with a frown. Uh-oh, she said. Looks like someone is lagging behind. Let's try this again, shall we? Yes, the others droned. Let's try this again. If you're wondering what happened after that, I have no idea. I remember going back to my apartment. I fell asleep and I woke up three days later. My roommate thought something was really bad. Worse still, I keep blacking out at random times of the day. I'll be at home on my laptop and then I'm sitting in my kitchen talking to my roommate with no memories of the conversation. When I asked her what was going on, she seemed confused. This morning, I woke up standing in the back rooms of Starbucks. Sam, Luna, and Ben were with me. Anna was talking to us, but I don't remember what she was saying. There were two men in black standing on either side of her. I think they were armed, though I can't be sure. I don't know if this is even real. I don't know if my mind is playing tricks on me. I keep blacking out and waking up somewhere completely different. I've had this reoccurring nightmare that I'm strapped down. The room is dim and there is no light. The only light is the one looming over me. It's so bright that it hurts my eyes. Something sharp is pointed directly at my face. And there are people all around me. They wear masks and stare at me with quizzical eyes that don't blink. Every nightmare that I have, the needle gets closer. My roommate thinks that I need to go and see a doctor. I told her that the Starbrooks video did something to me, but she thinks that I'm playing around. I just know that I'm not the same. I don't sleep. I barely eat. I can't remember the last time that I went to class. I don't work at Starbrooks, and yet I'm always there. I'm always there standing in front of Anna. But her words never make sense when I try to go over them in my head. I just know that I have to do something. I have to do something important. I know something for sure. Whatever I'm doing, I don't think I'm making coffees. I hope you all enjoyed this week's stories. As always, wherever you might be in the world, stay safe and stay creepy.